0: Mark Gober is one of the great thinkers of our time, and he translates that into his podcasts, into speeches, and into the many books that he's written on a variety of different subjects. In this podcast, we dive deep into the cultural woes that we're experiencing right now and what it would look like to have a different culture, a culture that represented this more beautiful world our hearts know as possible, and what the challenges are with what we're facing and what the opportunities are for where we're going. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast with Mark Gober. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Four Visions Market. And Four Visions Market is kind of my go-to place for a lot of shamanic tools. It supports over 30 different indigenous artists and their families through more than fair trade purchase, so their spiritual tools and art. They got high quality, made-in-prayer medicines. It's a bridge to over 15 Amazonian tribes that are sharing their traditions and really their magic and medicine. 50% of the proceeds are going to go directly to the tribes, artisans, and healers. And on top of that, Four Visions Market donates 10% of their profits to their partner nonprofit, Movement for Amazonian Growth and Indigenous Cultures. They call it the Magic Fund and other different Amazonian operations with missions that are aligned with their values. This year, Four Visions Market, they're spearheading a native plant reforestation and seed preservation project in the Colombian Amazon, as well as a bunch of different support for the Putumayo region and the hundreds of indigenous people there. The tools from the Four Visions Markets, they're all handcrafted. If you're talking about caripes or tepes, and all of the different botanicals, they're wild harvested, again, in sacred prayer and the proper way. And you're really receiving you know, genuine medicinal tools from these incredible traditions that have deeply impacted my life. So, some of the products they include they have an Ambi Sachayage microdose tincture, ceremonial grade cacaos, Amazonian king nettle, melipona honey eye drops for eye health, nausea oil for nasal support, a Chilcuagüe healing spray, and of course, their hape, which I absolutely love. So, if you're interested in any of these goodies, check out Four Visions Market dot com f-o-u-r visions and use the code amp amp for 15 percent off your very first order next up we have mud water now mud water is one of my favorite products that are out there in the health and wellness better for you space it's a coffee alternative it has four adaptogenic mushrooms it has cacao ayurvedic herbs and And it's really a coffee alternative. It has a fraction of the caffeine of a cup of coffee, but I do like a little bit of caffeine. And Mudwater just hits that sweet spot. It doesn't have a bunch of sugar or anything in there. So if you want to add your own sweetener, you're welcome to. Or if you're mixing it in a shake or a warm morning drink like I often do, it's just really a kind of a perfect product. And it's no surprise that Mudwater has done so well as a company because it's just Phenomenal and phenomenal all the way up, all the way down. Not only from the quality of ingredients, the flavor profile, and also just the customer service and the ethos of the company itself. I am a huge fan. And again, cacao and chai for mood and a microdose of caffeine. They got lion's mane, which helps with cognitive support and alertness. Cordyceps, which is the flagship ingredient in our product, Shroom Tech Sport from Onnit. It's got chaga and reishi to support your immune system and offer that. A little bit of calm that comes with the reishi mushroom. Turmeric is also one of those great products for any kind of stiffness or soreness you might be feeling. And cinnamon, which is an ingredient that's very close to my heart, that also has a bunch of antioxidants. And actually, in high enough amounts, can help with blood sugar regulation. I talk about that a bit in my book, Own the Day. So Mudwater is just one of those things that if you're curious about a coffee alternative and you like making delicious beverages, whether they're smoothies or hot drinks, I highly recommend it. It's Whole30 approved, 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, kosher certified. It's got all the goods. So go to mudwater.com slash amp. That's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com slash amp. And use the code Aubrey to get 15% off at checkout. Once again, the code Aubrey for 15% at checkout. And finally, we have Onnit. Now, everybody's heard me talk about Onnit. Why? Because I created Onnit largely as a solution to everything that I've wanted to have available for my own life. So it's just expanding the toolbox of all of the tools that are available. I actually had somebody ask me recently, saying what do you do with all of the different supplements and biohacking techniques and everything that you're aware of how do you fit it all in and my explanation was really look i've spent the time to get familiar with all of the different tools all of the different supplements all of the foods all of the practices and i don't do everything every single day that would be crazy but I know which tool to apply to which situation to bring out the total human optimization that I'm looking for in that given moment. So that's how I do it. And Onnit is a huge indelible part of this process for me and I know it will be for you. So check out everything we have, onitcom slash Aubrey for 10% off always. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey and now an uninterrupted podcast with Mark Gober. Good to see you in person, brother. Thank you for having me, Aubrey. Yeah. So, you just told me that uh right before you came, you sent in your manuscript for a new book about the Great Reset. Yeah. And uh sounds a bit ominous. Like some there's some there's some scary shit that might be coming down the pipe that's been pretty much out in the public. Like they're talking openly about it. But explain the Great Reset. You know, people who've kind of maybe heard the word, but don't really understand what's going on.
1: Yeah, sure. One of the reasons I decided to write it is that I realized a lot of people might have heard the term, but actually don't know what it is. And it's a vision for the world that's been laid out by the World Economic Forum, which is one of the most powerful bodies in the world. And um, in June of 2020... Some might argue the most powerful. Hard to say. A powerful organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that has influence in global governments, global businesses. So it's something worth paying attention to if they're laying out a vision for the world. That's the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. But in June of 2020, they announced that it's time for a great reset, that COVID-19 presented an opportunity for the world to be reset in a way that they view to be positive, or at least that's how it's positioned. Sure. Um, But I think there are potential dangers with it. Um, I mean, with everything like technology, for example. It can be used for good or for negative purposes. And I see the Great Reset in that way. Um, so what I try to do in the book is to look at um, different areas that they talk about within the Great Reset. And they actually wrote a book as well called COVID-19, The Great Reset, that lays out all this stuff.
0: And when you say they, so there, were there authors mentioned? Or is it just like the, uh, the author
1: byline was World Economic Forum? No. Uh, Klaus Schwab, uh-huh. who's the head of the World Economic Forum, and his colleague Thierry Mallory, they're the authors, the co-authors okay. of COVID-19, so, The Great Reset. Yeah, um, I say they because it's ha- also hard to know who is actually endorsing which aspects of it. Right. And I try not to point fingers at individuals because it's like, you don't actually know who's endorsing what. Sure, uh, But the themes are definitely being carried out. Mm-hmm. So the six areas that I look at in the book, and they don't organize it this way, but I, as I studied it, saw these six categories for where society is heading. One is culture. Well, where they want it to head. Where they want it to head, and it seems like it's also heading in that direction already. But uh, there's a cultural aspect, political aspect, economic, environmental, technological, and metaphysical. So what I do in the book is just go through what they have said or what they've omitted Mm. in those areas and show the potential dangers because I think it's just important to be aware. And we were talking before the interview. One of the themes that probably drove me to write this book is that compassion can be weaponized. People who have really good intentions and they want to do good things for the world can sometimes overlook how their behavior or the things that they're pushing for are actually not so compassionate.
0: Well, I mean, a lot of times aphorisms, uh, they have a root in something that's meaningful. And the, the term, the, the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions that there's probably some Probably some reason why that exists and has lasted in culture for as long as it has. Yeah. That's I, a warning.
1: I use that quote in the introduction Yeah, uh, for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, because good intentions are inadequate sometimes. It's a good starting point. And I think one of the reasons I was so sensitized to this is that my prior books focused a lot on metaphysics and spirituality and the science that suggests that we're actually spiritual beings, which I didn't used to believe. And then I realized, wow, there's a lot of science pointing this direction. And that world promotes compassion, as it should, because the spiritual dimensions seem to suggest that that's actually built into the fabric of reality. Sure. So that's a good thing. But where can it lead us astray? And when I look back at my like, history of trying to research all this stuff, in my second book, An End Upside Down Living, um, I talk about approaches to life based on having a spiritual worldview and how it's shifted my life. And one of the approaches I called compassion with discernment Mm-hmm. And there was a story that I came across when I was studying awakening journeys of, of people, whether it was through psychedelics or meditation, they've had awakenings. And this one woman, I think it was just a, you know, through meditation, um, she was feeling loving towards everyone, and like she was in the state of bliss all the time. She met a man who she then let into her life and didn't realize that this guy was not good news. So he ended up living with her, and she said it was hell. The guy manipulated her and did all sorts of bad stuff. But that story just stuck with me of someone who had really good intentions, but just didn't have the discernment to see the potential downside. So that's kind of the the psychology that I'm approaching with this book and hoping to impart on people.
0: Yeah. I think this is, uh, both of those things are natural pairs. And I've been studying the Kabbalist tree of life and there's pairs of different balances, you know, between these kind of this overwhelming desire to love and then the nece- necessity for boundary and they're paired on either side of the tree of life right and it's yeah. three different pairings that all have a similar flavor of this this kind of yin and yang of like yes i love you i'm so compassionate i want to do only good but here's the discernment here's the boundary and here's the the logistical aspects that are required to do this and that's part of the human condition is to feel all of that kind of divine impulse but then also have honor this dimensional reality that we're in and understand that there's other darker impulses that also exist in the universe that impact at least this third density in a way that we have to be mindful of both. So I really like your compassion and discernment combination. It's very much a Kabbalist way of looking
1: at things. And it's something I'm just appreciating more and more for the reasons you're saying, that we live in a dimension that is not all unconditional love, even though people do experience that when they go to these other dimensions. In a near-death experience, people come back and say, look, we're all interconnected. The universe is made of unconditional love and they can't express it with words, but they felt it. And this is so many people.
0: And then they post that on Instagram and someone's like, fuck you, you pseudoscientist quack with your woo woo bullshit. You know, hope next time you
1: die for real. And they're like, what the fuck just happened? So yeah, that's, that's our reality. That's our reality. And if people haven't experienced that themselves, they can't relate to it. Yeah. Um, And people have these experiences, these, they're called NDEs for short near death experience. They might've been atheistic beforehand. Like it changes them forever. And it's, something I've studied a lot because like psychiatrists look at this and they see the way people change after an NDE, that they actually change their priorities because Mm -hmm. they've had this other experience. Um, but the piece of it that's missing from those experiences is the discernment aspect because they were in these other dimensions or whatever it was. Like you say, we live in this whatever material 3d world where there is duality that we have to be aware of. And, um, it just it feels like a, an increasingly important topic to have both the compassion and the discernment at the same time, not to reduce the compassion in any way, but yeah. boundaries, like you say.
0: Yeah, I prefer the two cups of ayahuasca, 100 micrograms of five meo DMT, near death experience, personally, than than having to the universe to construct something mechanically. That's definitely preferred. Just keep it this way, but it's the same. It's the same result. You f- you feel something that you know to be true, and then how do you integrate and translate that into the life? that we certainly live. And so this is all going to be ground that our audience is very well familiar with yeah. for the most part. Uh, however, so let's go into these six categories. And what I would like to propose as a as a rough itinerary for this conversation is that we actually cover these six categories as as the Great Reset would have it, and then cover them as we imagine, mm-hmm. just from our own limited purview, not saying that we're the experts or that we're writing the antithesis of the Great Reset, that we have any right to do so. This would be a collective effort of the best minds of you know, indigenous wisdom to scientific wisdom to philosophical wisdom to all of the whole, everybody needs to come together to figure this thing out. However, we're going to do our best to just throw some ideas out there on the opposite positive side of how this could be, you know, how this could be better. And maybe The Great Reset does have some good ideas that that we'll take. So we're going to basically look at these two things, compare and contrast, see where we end up. Yeah.
1: And they do say some good things in the book. They talk about health. They talk about, they even talk about the dangers of technology. So it's not like it's all, all fully evil. I mean, there are aspects that could turn in that direction, but I like the way you framed it. Let's just go through each one, talk about the positives, negatives, and how we might envision something better.
0: Yep. Let's go. All
1: right. Femme voyage. So, and I want to emphasize here, they don't lay it out like this. So this is my interpretation, these six categories. Right. All right. So the first one is culture. And they talk about having a more equitable world with more fairness. And they focus on things like justice, which in some ways, that's a very positive thing, especially given human history where we've had all sorts of prejudices throughout history, but the question is, how can that be weaponized? That's what I'm looking at.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is classic propaganda, like <laughs> m- you know, idea. You you name something that you can't argue with. We're here for justice, and everyone's like, well, of course, who doesn't want justice? You know, right? You want justice? Black Lives Matter. Yes, of course they do. You right. know, like, but that doesn't mean you can do anything if you just call yourself that. Yeah, And it doesn't mean just calling the name justice makes it justice. It doesn't mean that you say fact checker, that you're actually checking facts. Like, none of that actually works. But the the strategy is name something that's inarguable. And then if people are against it, then then you pretend that they're against the name of the thing, which, no, you can't be against the name of it. Of course, it's course it's true. However, what you're doing underneath that name is where you have a problem, but then people lose the distinction, and then that's that's a big problem. So of course, you know, right. any propaganda strategy is going to name something that you can't argue with.
1: Right. And there's no definitive endpoint. When
0: right. do you
1: get to the point of final justice and final fairness? And who decides? And who makes that decision? That's the critical point. Right. So if you have an organization that is controlling or has great influence over governments, and governments have great influence over the people, that could potentially be dangerous. And if you look at human history, governments have done some horrible things. Yes. Under the name of, this is also a really important point, under the name of the common good, Mm -hmm. that we're doing this for the betterment of everyone. And there are people like Friedrich Hayek, the Nobel Prize winning economist, and also uh, G. Edward Griffin. They've talked about this notion of collectivism, Mm -hmm. that we need to focus on the group, society. And the danger there is that you could ignore the individual in that process because the individual doesn't matter. All that matters is the greater good. And so it can become an excuse to do horrible things to individuals in the name of just the collective. So these, these terms around culture. And we've seen this with communist regimes, you know, around the world. Communist, fascist, any totalitarian regime becomes ultimately collectivistic in its rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of this, the cultural stuff seems like it's in that direction. Well, this is for the greater good. It's for great equality and it's vague. um, And it ignores the fact that there are individuals that make up the collective. You can't have a collective Mm -hmm. without individuals.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: But also with regard to equality and equity, because those terms are coming up a lot more these days, um, especially like DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is something that's really big in businesses, which of course sounds good. And there are benefits to stuff like that, like you say. But the term equity in particular, that typically means equal outcomes. So how could that go wrong? That means people need to have equal outcomes. So let's say Aubrey's running a marathon and you do really well and you do better than someone else, they could say, that's not equity. We got to like the next marathon. Aubrey's got to. Yeah. They got a Tanya Harding, my legs. (laughs) Clearly. Then we've got equity. That's equity. We've got equity. So this is the key is what do these terms really mean? And Friedrich Hayek, the Nobel prize winning economist, he said, look, people are not equal. We're fundamentally diverse. And in order to make them equal, you have to treat them unequally.
0: Yeah. Well, (laughs) and, and also we are equal. It's just, on the spiritual dimension of of actual worth. Yes. Of actual, how much does God love us equally? Equally. Like, that's true. It's true. Yes. Fundamentally, you are worthy of as much love as any other human being on this fucking planet, no matter who you are. True. Yeah. However, if you're running a race, you know, or if I'm fucking Nancy Kerrigan and I'm, I'd throw a better triple axel than you, then sorry about it. You know, my triple axle is just way doper. Right. You know, it's clean.
1: What are you going to do? Right. But this stuff gets weaponized. Right. Um, and I think there's a lack of appreciation of what you were just describing, which is a paradox. The paradox that we are equal and at the same time not equal. Yeah. At one level, we're equal at the spiritual dimension. Right? Yeah. We're all one. One. We're part of this infinite field. But we're in this material world where I have a mind, you have a mind there is a division there's duality so it's like you can people can pick and choose um whether, go back and forth between the two and not acknowledge that the the paradox actually fits you have these two seemingly contradictory ideas that fit together mm-hmm. and i think a lot of that becomes lost in this cultural
0: yeah. battle and then even you know so equal so all right equality of outcome is one is one way to look at it which is you know clearly dangerous because then it gives authority to basically take from some and give to others, which is, uh, that doesn't actually sound fair at all. <laughs> and then the other one is the quality of opportunity. And I actually think there is, this is, this is a lot more interesting and important. Like, I think basically there should be an equal, like a, a starting point for the race. That's if we're talking about a marathon, like, all right, like, Let's remove all the categories that would prevent you from starting the marathon at the same time as everybody else, mm-hmm. you know, but that gets tricky too. It's like, it's a very, it's very even complicated to do that. And I think the intention for that is a lot more reasonable, you know, to say like equal opportunity. And certainly you have to look historically that people of color and women have not had equal opportunity right. and we're making great strides in providing equal opportunity. And like, that should be celebrated For sure. And, but then how you enforce that can get a little tricky, you know, like it can get a little odd when you start getting into the details of Title IX and you get into the details of affirmative action and these different plans. You're like, and the way that they handle NFL coaches or things like that. When you talk to people in the NFL, it's like, well, it's like the the impulse is right. Mm -hmm. And like we all agree with it. it. Then it just comes down to like the logistics. Like, is this really doing? what you, what we want it to do, or is there a better strategy? But like applauding also the, the way that the heart wants that. The heart wants us to have a chance to train the same way, to run the same race. And, and that's, that's something that we all definitely want, but it's just about, all right, what what are the logistics?
1: Right. And who sets those rules? (laughs) Who
0: sets the rules? That's really the critical part of it. And are they working? You know, like this was something that Milton Friedman did a, did a bunch of, he would look at is like do seatbelt do seatbelt laws save lives and his conclusion was looking at the data no they don't actually because people drive faster because they feel safer and then they kill more pedestrians and get in more wrecks right like that was i haven't looked at that study in a long time mm-hmm. but that was in you know one of the classes that i took actually at university of queensland where we talked about that and it's like oh whoa you know, like everybody just says, seatbelts save lives. Well, they do if you're wearing it and something happens in that case. But actually, generally, they don't necessarily. And, and so we're not actually looking at what the law actually is, what the law is actually doing. Yeah, We're just imagining it. Same with like cannabis laws, right? Like everybody had all these ideas about why cannabis should be illegal. And Colorado's like, yeah, it's legal. Everybody's like, uh-oh. And then everything, just everything gets better. Accidents go down. Revenues go up. People are more chill. Like, it's fucking, like,
1: universally better. Everybody's like, oh, huh. Yeah. There's a difference between things that sound good and things that actually do good in practice. Right. And there's a psychology behind this, which I get into the book as well. I talk about cognitive biases, uh, like Daniel Kahneman's work, Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist. He talks about, for example, framing effects. The way you frame identical situations um, can change the way people interpret those situations. So, for example, something that is... Uh, 90% fat free will be interpreted differently than calling it 10% fat. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. So we have to be aware of that with all this branding that's being thrown at us. Depends on if you want fat. Like, I want the fat. Yeah.
0: I'm like, I'm like, 10% fat. Fuck yeah. Let's go. Right. Is that all? Fucking pump that shit up. <laughs> Depends let's on party. the consumer. <laughs> let's party. <laughs> let's party. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but that's what we're seeing with a lot of the branding for the societal movement is like it's it's framed in a certain way, yeah, uh, that appeals to the psychology of, of particular people. And
0: and so going to this diversity, equity, inclusion, yes, we do want all of that. Yeah. Framed, framed in that way, like we do, and then but the but how that actually plays out becomes very very fucking tricky.
1: Right, and what is what are the uh, the like metrics on which we're going to be diverse and inclusive? Mm -hmm. Um, like Thomas Sowell, the economist, he said, um, if we want to be, I believe it was, he said, if we want to be inclusive or diverse, look at the sociology departments in colleges, it's very much left leaning. They don't have like ideological diversity. Um, so I mean, diversity and and inclusion go across many different areas and typically it's just thought about in maybe just the racial domain or gender, which are important things, but there are other areas too that aren't often included.
0: Yeah. And, and also uh, there's this interesting, you know, kind of arbitrary way that we look at race and inclusion as well. Like my wife's Hawaiian and Filipino and I'm Ashkenazi Jew and Russian. And, but we're, we're just white. Right. Right. Like, even though like we're pretty, I don't know, caramely, tannish looking, you know, in general, but like there's, there's like big lumps of categories. And I actually understand why those categories were lumped because back in the day, horrible shit was done to people with particular tones of skin. But even still then there was also like, and I don't even know how this actually worked. What if it was like a, a dark, you know, you know, a a dark person from Mumbai, Mm Mm-hmm. You know, were they treated the same as an African person when the when the skin tone was? It's a very it's a very interesting thing, but nonetheless, you can't argue that people were discriminated against wildly and yeah. horribly mistreated based on things like skin tone. But it's and so it's important to acknowledge that it's important to acknowledge the current existence of racism that is a, is an actual factor that we have to deal with, and then also realize that the old ways of classifying actually don't fit the new world either. Mm -hmm. You know, like filling out my race on a driver's license is like, okay, (laughs) I guess white, I guess. You know, but like my ancestors fled the pogroms in Russia where there was armed Cossacks coming around to Jewish houses and looking to slay them. Mm -hmm. And they escaped before then, Nazi Germany did the same thing to everybody else in there so all right but white whatever you know what i mean it's like it's it's been and my wife all right like hawaiian is her thing but you know and i think there is like a pacific islanders thing actually that they they put on there but nonetheless it's like it's a very weird it's a very weird thing that we have to just lump ourselves into a category when we're all of this we're we're this diverse melting pot and mixed and i think it's just the remnants of former the ghosts of racism past that have extended into present. some of these ghosts still exist and i don't want to deny that yeah. they're still the ghosts of racism's past but like they're those ghosts need to be exercised in the minds of all of us and i agree with that but nonetheless the old system can't apply forever you know like we have to we have to be able to look at how we're all a, it's this crazy mix of all of these different races. I think A.J. Jacobs wrote a book called It's All Relative showing how we're only certain degrees of separation from every single human being mm-hmm. on the planet. Right. You know what I mean? And so we have to have a new model that envisions, all right, maybe we need a bridge from where we were and we're still bridging from where we were, a very dark racist time, particularly in this country, to the, to the next time. But we can't stay on the bridge forever. The bridge has to lead to somewhere. And at some point we have to kind of imagine that we're going to a place that's not looking at these metrics in the same way.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And in the book, I talk about this notion of anti-racism, which in some ways, like you describe, is very relevant and important. But how can that be twisted to become racist in its own way, where certain skin colors or ethnicities become preferred over others? And some people have called this uh, an oppression Olympics, where there's almost Mm -hmm. a competition to see who can be more oppressed, whether it's on the basis of race or other categories. there's a, uh, It's called intersectionality. That's the term used of uh, basically the different ways in which a person can be evaluated. It's not just their ethnicity, but it could be their sexual orientation, their gender. And you basically evaluate people on all these different metrics. Yeah. And then it starts to become its own form of a problem where it's like you're, you're dehumanizing the person. You're just categorizing them. Mm-hmm. And there's a new book out by Vivek Ramaswamy. It's called Nation of Victims where he talks about this victimhood mentality that's actually being encouraged through a lot of this stuff, these cultural movements, which have some basis. It, there's some good to it. Sure. Uh, but it, it's being weaponized where excellence now is being demonized. It's like a form of privilege to be excellent. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a dangerous trend, especially given that we live on a planet where we've had oppressive governments throughout history. Sure. You need to have a strong populace people that want to be excellent they don't want to think about being victims all the time and not wallowing in that
0: well it's wildly disempowering to consider yourself a victim you know like i think it was castaneda that said like you can't be you can't be a victim and a hero at the same time or maybe use differently you can't be a victim and a warrior at the same time or basically like you have to choose one or the other you're either a victim or you're the captain of your fate the master of your destiny you know like And you, you have to make that choice. Now, of course, the paradox is that we are both, you know, to a certain (laughs) degree always. And, but it's, it's the mentality that says like, yes, you can overcome this, you know, whatever it was. And, and I, we can't know how hard it is. Like my brother, you know, my brother, Makad, like he had to deal with some really intense shit growing up, you know, from racist, you know, police brutality type of situations. And I can only I can only empathize with him, just like he could only empathize with what my you know great grandfathers had to deal with, where they're living in a hut out in the out in the woods near the Black Sea, and there's mounted riders that could come and slay the family. Like, and and his he's got ancestors that had other shit that right. they, we can only imagine what it's like and what imagine what we've experienced. But you know, fundamentally, it's. This is, this is something that we have to, have to recognize is, okay, this is all true. And we can still make the choice to say, all right, all of this is true, maximum compassion. However, we can all decide that these challenges are actually what's gonna define us and make us actually great. Yeah. And, and that decision is the empowering decision, which is going to be healthier for the psyche long-term. And it doesn't deny what happened. It's not denying what happened, but it's a different mentality that you put on it. It says, whatever you went through, there's a way through. There's a way out. There's a way to find your power, your voice, your strength. And and that's, that's I think, the message that's different. It's not like let's compete to see who's the biggest victim to then say, I don't have any responsibility because why would I? I've been victimized so much that I've put my personal power at such a low point that i have no responsibility and you can't ever criticize me for what i do so i'm going to be as small as possible it doesn't help we need lions we need people who are like like sharing their voice and singing as part of the chorus everybody and then the whole narrative should be shifted to encourage people to like i know it was hard and we're not denying how fucking hard it was but we need your voice and we need you strong and we need your heart and we need you. We need you. Like that's the, to me, that's, that's the message that needs to be there.
1: Yeah. And this is getting to the solution, I think, for right. the cultural issues. To me, it's a, it's a both and rather than an either or solution. Yeah. yeah, we can acknowledge victimhood. We can acknowledge horrible things that have happened with regard to racism and other cultural issues throughout history.
0: Yeah, And bias, towards, th- bias towards sexual orientation, exactly. bias towards trans community. All that's real. Yes. Like it's all real shit. And let's transcend it. Include that and transcend it.
1: Exactly. And so two things. Number On the on the darker side, this has happened before in other cultures. So I referenced some people who escaped uh, from communist China in the book. And they said, what's happening in America is the cultural revolution that we experience there. And depending on the estimates you read, like the Black Book of Communism says that 65 million people were murdered in communist China as a result of similar types of themes. So that's why this is a really important thing to keep in mind. Right. Um, but in terms of the the positive solutions, you were alluding to something that I actually wrote about in the book. And, and Ken Wilber, the philosopher, talks about like, mm-hmm. integral models of development, yeah. both on personal levels, but also yeah, he's you know,
0: big in the include and transcend. That's it. That's that's where it comes from.
1: Include and transcend, and that's how I see it for all these categories. Is there's there's a point to everything that they're saying, uh, but we can include the good parts and leave the the parts that are going to take us down a, a dark hole that we've seen throughout human history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what else in, what else on the culture side are you seeing is potential, a potential threat and then a potential way that, way that that could be addressed and remedied in the, in the more beautiful future?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we covered the, the basics. I go into some more details. Uh, there's a really interesting book by God It's called The Parasitic Mind. Mm. Um, and he goes through parasitic ideas in society where Uh, basically like postmodernism, social constructivism. These ideas were basically like objective truth doesn't exist or people are skeptical of the objective truth and they can make up whatever truth they want it to be Mm -hmm. based on what is politically correct. Um, So I go through some of the examples of that and it's actually pretty hilarious. There was something called the Grievance Studies Affair. Are you familiar with that? No. Uh, James Lindsay and Peter Boghossian and um, Helen Pluckrose, they wrote hoax papers that talked about like one of them was Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf using feminist buzzwords, like really extreme stuff. Um, I I go through the, I have like a a summary table in the book that goes through Mm -hmm. all the stuff. Like it's hilarious, but journals accepted these papers. So the idea is that if you say something that's in the direction of what's considered culturally acceptable, they'll accept the papers and then they came out later and these were just they were trying to make it as ridiculous as possible basically
0: wow well, yeah i mean it's <laughs> it's this is a this is a very interesting time where it's there's different tribal lines being formed and there's a cultural tribal identity that you could call and and i don't like calling it any any names but but it is a something and it's whether you call it woke or whether you call it liberal or whether you call yeah. it whatever it is there's put po- whether you call it postmodern or whether you call it, and they all weave in and they're not exactly right and they're not exactly wrong but there's there's a kind of a team and the team supports a variety of different things and it is it is politicized in a way but it's it goes beyond political politics as well because even the politicians don't actually ascribe to what the team is actually believing they just pretend to yeah in a lot of ways is what i is what it seems for me yeah it seems like most of the time it's same shit, different piles, and they just pretend that they're belonging to a team, but they really don't belong to any team other than the let's get reelected" team of <laughs> themselves, right? Like that seems like that for me, but there's these kind of team affinities where and and every team believes that they're better than the other team. And like this is a this is a problem, ultimately, because then rational thought goes out, and it's like like team above all. You know, and it's just kind of like fucking Lannister mentality. It's like the family, the family, the family. It's the same. It's the team, the team, the Lannisters, the team, the fucking whoever else. And even if you got a good team, like it's still the Starks, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like that idea is ultimately going to put you in perpetual conflict and also not allow you to see like actually the good and, and the reason and and the compromise it's necessary to move forward. So a transcendence of this team mentality, which slides in. First of all, it gives you a sense of belonging. And second of all, if you believe that your team is better than another team unequivocally, then if somebody else is on the other team, you're by nature better than that person. So you're better than half the population. Mm -hmm. So if you're in bottom, bottom, even if you're in the bottom quartile of your team, no worries. You're still better than 50% of the other world who's on the other team. So like... It's a way that the ego can place itself in comparison with the rest of the world and give itself other people to stand on top of in the in the egoic ranking system, in whatever virtue they're ascribing. And for some people, the virtue is the old virtues of strength and power and money, you know. And then there's the counter virtues of ethics, morality, com, you know, compassion. Mm-hmm. And so you're just changing the game and describing like depending on your virtue plex of what you value is most virtuous of the virtues. And then you place yourself on top of that and then you're better than somebody. Right. And this is what, this is what these teams are allowing people to access and why it's also so hard to let go of any of the tenets of your team belief. Yeah.
1: And people like to win and they like to be right. Yep. So there's a psychological incentive to stick with your position, even if it's disproven or if there's contradictory evidence that right. comes out. But the way I describe it in the book, because the Great Reset has a particular version of its direction for society. And I, I label it as leftism and distinguish it from liberalism because there is a, a, a difference. And Dennis Prager, who's a prominent conservative, has like broken this down. Mm. A lot of the conservatives have looked at the, the left generally. So that's, that's what I look at in the book. I call it a, a leftist movement. And... Um, some of the differences between leftist and liberalism, according to Prager, and I, I agree with them, is like, for example, uh, liberals with regard to race tend to not want to look at race, whereas leftists want to focus on race more. Mm. Um, liberals might be more open-minded to capitalistic ideas economically, whereas the left really wants to get rid of it. So it's, that, it's more of an extreme version of some of the ideas. Yeah. And that seems to be very much in alignment with the Great Reset. And that's why I focus on that. Um, yeah. it's not to say that the far right hasn't had problems too. Um uh, but interestingly, Jordan Peterson, clinical psychologist, he talked about this, that on the far right, we have, we can delineate where there is a problem and we've seen it historically and we can say, look, that is going too far on the right, whether it's racism and things like that. Mm-hmm. But he says on the left, we haven't really set those boundaries to identify, look, we're going too far and this is a dangerous territory. Right. And I thought that was a really interesting point because it's like, with the, these leftist movements, which seem to dominate education system, and I talk about this in the book, that like, academia is dominated ideologically, uh, it's not balanced. Um, wh- where do we say that it's too far? Um, and if, it's, if everyone is sort of in that mindset, because that's the media we're consuming and the education we're consuming, we might be less inclined to see that we're getting to a dangerous point. And I point back to the cultural revolution in China, where people who have been through this, they're seeing we're moving in that direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, and then it's, it gets really tricky for someone like myself, who's been a massive proponent of, you know, allowing radical personal sovereignty in the decisions that we make. Whereas traditionally the right has been trying to regulate what you can do to alter your consciousness, how you can have sex, who you can marry, all of this shit. I'm like, this is fucking archaic caveman bullshit. You know, like, fuck off with all of this, you know, pseudo-fundamentalist, puritanical nonsense. Like, if you want to fucking smoke weed, take mushrooms and butt-fuck your buddy and marry him, go for it. Like, go for it. You know, like, whatever. Do it. Live your life. So that's a very, what was, like, a left-leaning principle, right? And then, there's other things where it's like definitely like more conservative in the way that we're looking at, you know, free market economies. And then also, also recognizing the dangers of those and how the influence and the, and the capture that pharmaceutical companies are, there's fucking problems, yeah. but there's generally other things that kind of make, make sense on the other side. So to say that I'm one side or the other, like it's, it's always been impossible. I see like ridiculousness and all things also, the kind of hawkish militarization of the right is like, y'all, chill. Yeah. We don't need to explode more people for real. Like they will, th- everything will be okay. Like there's, I forget the forefather who was like basically talking about, you know, we just need to take care of ourselves and not get entangled in all of these different political and, and things that are going on. But then at the same time, I also understand sometimes there's crimes against humanity. And if we have the power to do something, then in some ways we have the unique responsibility to help. But are we actually doing that? Or are we just trying to get oil? Mm-hmm. You know, like, so I, so I doubt that. So, so on that side, I'm like, chill on the fucking bombing, everybody you all like, I agree. Like, I, you know, I think the soldiers in the military are heroes by nature, but they're weapons that are being pointed oftentimes at the wrong direction. Yeah. You know, and so like mad respect to all of the servicemen and everybody who's signing up. My criticism lies not with you. Know that anybody is in the, in the military and actually in anybody who's enforcing anything by means of violence, like you can be a shithead for sure. And I'm not excusing your personal behavior. I don't know if you're an asshole or not, but I appreciate what you're doing. But if you're enforcing bad laws or you're fighting a war that you shouldn't fight, like that's the, that's the place that I have issue. Yeah.
1: So, I'm with you, I'm with so you. So it's,
0: it's it's a weird thing. And everybody wants you to be on one team or the other. I'm like, no, I'm not on one team or the other. I think Trump's an idiot and Biden's incompetent. What do you want from me?
1: You know what I mean? Like, what, what like what do you want? Yeah. So I actually wrote a book called An End to Upside Down Liberty, uh, because I was coming up with the same problem of like, I see issues on both sides. So I end up in a very libertarian mindset sure, where I, I think that um Government is ultimately the problem. And the pr- this is leading into our discussion about politics and economics yeah. too, with also with regard to the Great Reset. For me, there's a principle in libertarian philosophy known as the non-aggression principle, which is very simple. Don't initiate aggression on any person's body or the property that they rightfully own. And if you do, then they have a right to self-defense. And aggression yeah. could be physical violence, fraud, coercion, theft, anything like that. Super simple. Yeah. But if you believe in the non-aggression principle, look at the way we run society and the way we run governments. The governments violate the non-aggression principle all the time. They yeah. can force you to do things you didn't consent to explicitly, maybe implicitly you did. So that's what that, my book on liberty is all about. To me, it's about all about the non-aggression principle. Well, what
0: they should enforce is your violation of the non-aggression principle to other people. Protecting people's property is and, what it comes and to. their And their personal self.
1: And their personal self, right. So yeah. let people do what they want to do. Yeah, As long as, long as, as, as not, it
0: doesn't impinge on somebody else's, yes. per, you know, selfhood and their rights in general to property, etc. Yeah,
1: it's simple. And, but It's I, simple. It, and it also has a spiritual tie. And that's what all really drew me in it. This is important. Um, we talked about this in our last conversation. The life review phenomenon. When people have a near-death experience, they often become all the people that they impacted in their life. They relive their life, sometimes from birth. Like for my podcast, it's called Where's My Mind. I interviewed a guy who actually had multiple near-death experiences and he started from birth each time and had to relive stuff, including being in Vietnam. His name's Danny Brinkley. He had to relive combat days in Vietnam, killing people. So he felt what it was like to be the person that he killed. Mm. And then he felt what it was like to be the child that no longer had a father. So that changed his life. And this is what happens to people who had these near-death experiences. I mean, he was struck by lightning, had cardiac arrest, brain, uh, like... It wasn't like he was voluntarily taking DMT or something.
0: I mean, do, do you get, <laughs> do they get to relive the dope stuff when they're like, yeah. they're like, man, I gave that one girlfriend five orgasms in one <laughs> day just with my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Did you get to relive that moment <laughs> well, where it's like,
1: that was dope? <laughs> they ha- I haven't heard people talk about that, <laughs> but I have heard them talk about. So this guy, Daniel Brinkley, he changed his whole life after he experienced the negative stuff, not knowing he was gonna have other life reviews. So he became a hospice volunteer and helped people in the dying process. Yeah. So in his life reviews later, he felt what it was like to be the dying person. Mm-hmm. And he got to feel the good stuff. So yeah. part of his life mission and many other people too. Is
0: Dear to- God, in my life review, I want to live all the orgasms that I've <laughs> given to my partners as a woman. Thank you very much, God. Appreciate it. <laughs>
1: I wonder if the NDE researchers have looked into that.
0: Well, it has maybe to come people up. just haven't
1: asked. Maybe they haven't asked.
0: Maybe it's just a, you know this is a this is a center intention. Make a good request. Yeah. So when that moment comes, and then then I'm going to get that grant, and it's just going to be like overwhelming. It's like oh
1: god, it's too much. That would make for a good scientific paper <laughs> to get approved, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Never thought about that. But anyway, back to the non-aggression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it ties into the non-aggression principle. Because if you believe in the life review as telling us something about the nature of reality itself, not everyone reports a life review. Right. But it, I mean, it happens a lot. So how could you become another person? That's telling us something about the nature of reality. Sure. That we're interconnected. And somehow when consciousness is liberated from the brain, like in a near-death experience or something else, you can look at life through a different lens. That's wild. Mm-hmm. So... If it's built into the fabric of reality itself, that we're interconnected and we should try to treat people well because we're interconnected, the golden rule, which is found all over the world in like every culture, mm-hmm. golden rule is built in the fabric of reality. That's what the life review tells us. Okay. How do we apply that to government and to private property? Would you want to initiate aggression against someone's property or their body? Yeah.
0: And and the golden rule, I think, is actually mistranslated. When I talked to my mystical Christian mentor, Ted Decker, saying is you know do unto others as you would have them do unto you really what he translates that as is do unto others because they are you like yeah. as they are you because they are you is really is really what that's saying is like do unto others because you're doing to yourself and this is this is like the ultimate level of the truth it's not because that's the moral thing to do to treat them like you do which is again, an equitable claim. This is, no, this is both an equitable claim and also a perfectly equitable claim because it's a metaphysical claim that it actually is you. Right. Yes. you can't escape it. You can't escape it. You are always doing unto others as you do to yourself. The golden rule is golden because you can't fucking break it. You can only just skirt it for a moment as you live in the myth of separation, which says, I'm me, you're you, I can hurt you and not hurt me. You can kind of get away with that on a limited dimensional, dimensionality, but that's going to bust. That's going to break. And then you're going to be back into the golden rule, living it from both sides. And I think this is the idea where my very first psychedelic journey, this is what I experienced. I experienced a life review mm-hmm. where I had a full dissolution of my body and a full life review where I got to recognize, and I was a complete atheist before going into this, and I realized like, oh, this is heaven or hell. Mm-hmm you pass through this liminal stage and you're either in heaven or hell. You're in the heaven of reviewing all of the good that you've brought into the world or the hell of looking at all the pain that you've caused or some combination therein. It's mostly on the heaven side, but I had some things, you know, I was like like little moments where I like mistreated a mistreated a classmate or, you know, like really, could have been more honorable Mm. to a girlfriend or something like that. There's moments that was like deeply painful, you know, and the long letters of like, like, Hey, like I saw this from a different perspective and, you know, I could have, I could have been more forthright with how I was feeling earlier. And I was scared to tell you and, you know, blah, 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 like whatever, you know, so it it wasn't major shit, but I could feel the pain of that and I couldn't look away. Mm. I just couldn't look away. And I could also feel the joy of it, of like, you know, like how much I would love my mom and love my sisters and like tried my, you know, really tried my best in so many cases. And there was just deep, incredible rapture, you know, in the recognition of that. And so that changed my worldview forever because I was like, oh, there's, you can't look away. You know, like you right. can't look away from what you've done. And that's, that keeps me. That keeps me in check. I know that to be true. And I repeat that. I've repeated that for 23 years where where if there's ever something where I was out of line, the medicine shows me and I have to look right the fuck at it. Mm -hmm. And I can't can't look away. And because of this, I trust myself with power. Fundamentally, I trust myself with power because I know that there's a greater power that I'm subject to Mm -hmm. that will strip me of whatever biases, justifications, rationalizations I might come up with and show me the fucking truth. So I better look at things honestly and I better treat people actually equitably, lovingly. Otherwise I'm gonna have to like, like one of those horror movies where they keep someone's eyes peeled open and they show them horrible shit. Well, it's like that. It's like that.
1: Yeah, so Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia who studies these near-death experiences as an academic, what the people tell him is that these life reviews are not just about morality, it's natural law. That's the term he uses. But this is exactly as you're describing, part of the reality that we're in. So that's pretty powerful. If we know an aspect of natural law through these experiences, what does that imply about the direction of our society and how things should be structured? Because the direction that we're moving in is one that is violating the non-aggression principle constantly Mm -hmm. under the guise of, well, it's for the common good. We know what's best for you. And therefore, we have a right to impose this. Um, In the book, I refer to it as an elitist mentality this idea that which in some ways people might have a benevolent intent where they're like, I'm really well educated and I know what's better for you better than you know for yourself. And I'm going to impose it because I really want to help you. That's can be a dangerous thing. It's that's different than a suggestion with the non-aggression principle. I can be like, Aubrey, look, I, this is my advice to you and you can do the same to me that you're not forcing me to do by giving me advice. uh, But you're not violating the non-aggression principle in the process. Whereas, the way our society works now, especially with governments, is that things are imposed. It's like we know what risk you should be taking, yeah, and therefore we're going to impose it on you, even yeah. if that means violating your bodily sovereignty. For example,
0: right. Well, all right. So let's go. Let's go into this one because I think people, you know, like fundamentally, vaccine mandates are something that I strongly oppose. Right. Me too. And I strongly oppose that. However. If you were to, let's hypothesize a scenario. This is where it gets difficult, right? Because mm-hmm. I think some people were living in this mental frame, which I believe is incorrect. And, um, you know, there's a new book coming out called uh, Cause Unknown or Unknown Cause or something like that by Edward Dowd, who's looking at this, yeah. you know, like the excess deaths that have happened since the vaccines are rolled out. And it's interesting, I haven't read it yet. It hasn't released yet as far as I understand. But in any case this this idea of the mandates in this particular instance was really deeply wrong and for a lot of reasons in my opinion yeah. right however let's say that we had true actionable information about a next a next let's say a next pandemic and me and you are you know one of, you's, one of us is Bill Gates. One of us is Klaus Schwab. Who you want to be?
1: <laughs> I give you the choice. I'll, I'll, I give all right, you the honor. I'll be Klaus. <laughs> okay. I'll be Klaus.
0: So I'm Klaus, you're Bill. Okay. And not that they're in charge of everything, but Klaus and Bill are like, all right, what are we going to do about things? And I'm not suggesting that they're the ones who are deciding everything. I think it's comp- much more complicated than that. But in this example, Klaus and Bill get to decide what happens, right? And Klaus and Bill are actually not horrible people also maybe a stretch, <laughs> but, but, all right, but who knows? Who knows? Uh, we don't know him. Yeah. So anyways, uh, I'm like, Bill, check it out. There's this new virus that's coming around and it's literally going to fucking kill a bunch of people. Mortality rates are like 40%. Doesn't discriminate between age and health. This is nasty, man. And uh, we didn't make this one you know, like this is coming out, and I'm not su- suggesting that they made the last one. You know, I'm just saying <laughs> that's what Klaus is saying, and he's uh, he's going all right. So we got an actual really good vaccine, but after this last COVID pandemic, uh, people don't really trust us anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a little skeptical. Things got a little squirrely. You know, we didn't run that one. You know, as good as we thought we as good as we thought we could. But literally, if and so there's going to be a lot of vaccine hesitancy, but if people don't get vaccinated, the population's going to be decimated. you know, mm-hmm. like I think we got to roll out mandates bill, you know, in this case, because actually, because what we've done in the past is really fucking people up, so this is the complicated position right that you could find yourself in with this much power if you believe these premises now, of course, this is a thought experiment, right,
1: so in this thought experiment like. Fuck, well, what do you do, Bill? Right. What do you do? So the way I think about it, and I talk about this in my Liberty book, is basically a new way of structuring society entirely, which gets rid of government as we do it currently. Because the way we do it currently is certain people have authority over people within a jurisdiction. And that authority is implicit, meaning the individuals within the jurisdiction didn't sign a contract saying, you have a right to impose all these things. So Mm -hmm. the government is a service provider that provides like court services, road servicing, a lot of important stuff. But there are other service providers in society like lawyers and consultants and everything you can imagine where there are customers and the customers hire someone. And typically, if it's an important service, you hire a contract and you, you say like, okay, you're going to do these things for me as a service provider. If you don't, we can terminate. You have all the stipulations in the contract. Uh, we have a social contract, and this gets into something in The Great Reset. They talk about redoing the social contract, which they acknowledge is often implicit. To mm-hmm. me, this is the key. Because now we're getting into non-aggression principle, golden rule stuff. If it's implicit, can you really force things on people? Um, So anyway, what's the solution to something like this? The way that it's envisioned in the future by uh, many economists in the Austrian School of Economics. It's uh, the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S, talks about this a lot. They're based in Alabama. Um, A society based on private property entirely. Mm -hmm. So the rules with regard to whether it's a pandemic or anything would be made by the private property owner. Interesting. Okay. So then if let's say there were a pandemic within a certain community, let's say where people voluntarily subscribed, they could say, look, I'm giving my right to these people to make decisions about health. And I, I am Mm. because they've consented. Then that's a different story. Right. And maybe other parts of the world, let's say other communities will say, look, we're not doing any mandates. Um, That's their, They're the owners. They're allowed to do that with their property. And they they might say, look, you need to have this injection in order to enter our property. It's their property. They can do that. Mm. And the theory economically is that this works itself out in the end because people will flock towards the places, the private property owners that do things in a better way. And they'll go away from the other ones. And this is the theory behind capitalism is that it's like self-correcting. And that,
0: but you know, part of the problem with that is, all right, so if I'm going to be devil's advocate, I don't disagree with you. uh, The devil's advocate move is, because you can you can make that argument about abortion rights right now right and so you can say like well you want an abortion and your state doesn't allow it hop over to this next state right and you can get an abortion but some people are like look i can't fucking afford to go over to this next state i can't afford to move so still nonetheless i'm suffering from this oppressive rule based on my and I, and the abortion thing is certainly complicated i don't yeah. want to simplify it but it is it would be the same idea in this is that some people don't have the mobility actually up and move. But in general, I think what you're talking about is probably the best solution. There's just casualties and losses on all sides. Always. Which is the tricky part.
1: It's tricky and it's imperfect. But the question is, is it less imperfect than our current system, which imposes on people? And the term that's often used, the one I use in my book is voluntarism. It's a form of libertarian society where everything is voluntary. Mm-hmm. You abide by the non-aggression principle, effectively. And I mean, with regard to abortion, it's really complicated because you're also dealing with the termination of a life, which some people might regard as an aggression toward that. It's, well, it's, hypothetically,
0: we, dealing with the you know termination of a life again, again and then you start this becomes a deeply philosophical issue. Philosophical. When does when does life begin, and when is this you know removing a skin tag? Right. And I don't mean to reduce the, uh, reduce, and I'm not trying to be reductionist in saying it, but you can argue that that's life as well. But what's, what is a differentiated life and what is part of your life yeah. and is your right? So it's fucking massively complicated and not worth us discussing on this podcast. <laughs> so, but, but ultimately the, the, the nuance, the complication of all of these things is, is rich. And, and, and that's why charting a really, it's important to chart a good course. And, and unfortunately, we're in a position now where, the only reason why this conversation, this hypothetical conversation between you know mostly benevolent Klaus and mostly benevolent Bill even makes sense is that the government has done such a shitty job establishing trustworthiness that actually there's resistance to the truth about this new, mm-hmm. uh, this new hypothetical virus that's coming around, right? Yeah. Because we absolutely were duped and and there's lots of metrics to show ways in which we were duped during this last vac- during this last pandemic right. so their cre- the credibility of the government is low the government's lying to us all the fucking time like this sure. and and like we're starting to see that so when you lose credibility then you can't actually say cuz like if there was credibility with the government the government could just go like listen y'all we can't force you to do anything you know but this is gnarly and this vaccine really works, and it's actually safe. And and like here's here's the data, and like here's here's everything, and like I'm, I'm like please, you right. know. And and it would actually work, and then like people would people would flock to it and do it. But because of the loss of credibility, now we're in a fucking tricky spot. That's now like, what do you do in these type of situations? Of course, it's just a thought experiment. Yeah, but it. it I think and I think people thought that way the reason i'm bringing it up is people i think thought that way during the last pandemic actually legitimately and they were faced with these complex decisions of these people aren't trustworthy enough they're not going to get vaccinated because they're conspiracy theorists we have to force them to do it you know and so their intention was good it's just their information and their and their analysis their discretion was bad but you can it, it allows for some humanists to realize like in these In these experiments, when you're like, if we don't do this, a bunch of people are going to die, you really believe that, then the impulse is going to be to violate the non-aggression principle.
1: Right. They'll justify it. The ends justify the means in this situation. Now, the way I would think about this or the Austrian economics perspective is that if we had regulatory agencies with financial accountability, they would go out of business. They did a bad job. With the yep. way government works, is they don't go out of business, and in, in fact, it can be the opposite. If the government does poorly in a certain area, they can say we need actually more money, and they get their money through taxation or yep. through printing money, central banks. Um, you don't. If, if you do that as a business, you, you're done if you don't do a good job. So that's a potential solution: is that the market would work itself would work this out, where you'd have an agency that's effectively a private regulator, or, or an entrepreneur could come up with some alternative solution mm-hmm. where they have proven their trustworthiness in the past. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they get paid to put their stamp of approval on drugs, maybe. Mm-hmm. And therefore, people would trust it out of their own self-interest. They'd want to trust it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, as as we said, solutions are all imperfect. But to me, that's to chart this new course, we have to chart a course based on new first values and first principles. And if a first value and first principle is non-aggression, yeah. then we have to actually allow everything to fall in line with that and realize that... Things might get a little wonky for a little while, you know, as we make the transition, but we're, we're charting a course towards truly a more beautiful world. Right. And, and there, there will come with sacrifices and costs and just helping, encouraging people along the process. But it's, it's benevolence combined with principles that accord with the natural laws, like, and all of these things start to line up. And, and I think it's the best we can do, acknowledging that it's imperfect.
1: Right. And also on a spiritual level, going back to first principles, is that my, my view of reality is that we live in some kind of an evolutionary universe, that, that the property of consciousness that we're all a part of is evolutionary. Indeed. And I don't know if that's the full meaning of life, but it seems to be part of it, that mm-hmm. we're having experiences and we're growing through that. Like the life review seems to suggest that if you look at some of the reincarnation research, children with past life memories studied at the University of Virginia, like if you combine re- reincarnation with the life review, it suggests that maybe there's an engine for evolution built into reality. So if you accept that as even partially true, then what is this voluntarist society that we're talking about based on non-aggression? What does that that do for people evolutionarily? It allows them to take risk on their own terms and to make mistakes on their own terms. Rather than having those mistakes imposed on them by a third party that they didn't necessarily explicitly consent to. Therefore, like you said, it will get hairy, it will be imperfect, but people will make mistakes on their own terms and therefore learn through that process. So I know that's a hard concept to grasp, but it's like, it's evolutionary as well.
0: And, and this is, uh, I love this. I love this because it's establishing, you know, evolution of the soul and of, of humanity as a priority, right. As a priority in the cosmos and to allow, allow evolution to occur in the best way. Now there's bounds on that. You can't evolve in your understanding that you don't want to kill somebody by killing somebody. And, and that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's not cool. Like we got to protect people from that level of making mistake in order to evolve. You know, like there are bounds of that. Of course, sure. we, we, we don't disagree with yeah. that at all. But placing evolution and the freedom to make our choices and make our mistakes. Like this is how a kid grows up, right? Yeah. Like do you really think that you can make the decisions for your child their whole life and they're going to live a fulfilled life and actually live their dharma and live their purpose? Fuck no. You got to let them live their life. Yeah. Probably way sooner than most parents actually acknowledge that you got to let let them live their life. But everybody knows this. But nonetheless, the government still tries to be the devouring mother and fucking overbearing father, and not let us live our life, especially when it comes to the sovereignty of our own consciousness. Right. Don't tell me not to do mushrooms. Have you done them? Do them with your friends. They're awesome. <laughs> Fuck
1: you. <laughs> you know, like you're wrong, and that's and that's like. It's a fundamental reality. And yet in the great reset what do they talk about? They talk about the return of big government. So you can see for someone like me who has a very libertarian perspective, I read this and say that is that is very dangerous. Yeah. They want more government, they want global coordination of governments. Of course, because we want to help you. This is for the betterment of society. Mm-hmm. But it to me it violates the non-aggression principle and historically we've seen how this has gone wrong before.
0: Totally. Dang. No good. All right, next category. <laughs>
1: so we covered the political one. I think so. Um
0: I think well, I mean one aspect of the political that I think we need to get to is we have to break the yoke of the two-party system. Yeah. We have to we have to fundamentally break that yoke because to try and decide red or blue and that's the only decision that you got, it's fucked up because they can just play games with each other, positioning against each other and making the decision fully tribalistic and actually impossible to distinguish any real meaning until you get a disruptive force in there that can actually change things up, then it just changes the dynamic. Three is different than two, even three. Right, right. It's
1: relatively better. It's still government, but it's moving right. toward a more, I don't know if it's decentralized. In a sense, it's decentralized. Well, it has the
0: opportunity for that yeah. because if you did have a libertarian candidate, for example, who is yeah. proposing smaller government, like everybody, even on the, even Republicans might say like, we want smaller government. Does the government get smaller under your, under your rule? No, maybe less. It grows less big yeah, than the other side, but you're still fucking big ass government, big ass military. You know, it's not really making any fundamental difference, yeah. but it would at least leave room for a legitimate. And, and to do that, the media would have to shift. We'd have to actually, you want to talk about, you know, equitable, inclusive. How about we equitably include some fucking third-party candidates yeah. in the system you know how about that yeah. well of course not they're not interested in that they want to keep their fucking duopoly on our political system so i don't know i, I think something like that is necessary even though i still don't as you know i still have a very little faith in politics as it is but but what is the What else could we, what else could we fundamentally do other than, I think one of the ideas that Schmachtenberger is working on is actual live populist votes on particular issues. So it's not, so like you're actually proposing something like you do on the ballots Mm -hmm. for the states, but you're doing it on a bigger scale where people are voting on that. But then that requires both trust in the voting system, which I think is, is questionable at this point, not only... I think, and I think, but I think both sides. I think to think that one side is is being unfair and the other side isn't—that doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. I think both sides are trying to cheat as much as possible. I think it was Tito Ortiz, the fighter, was like, "If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying." <laughs> you know, and I think that's like the political <laughs> motto on either side. Like everybody's trying to game the system as yeah. much as they can. So you have to have trust in that system. So you have to have like some price waterhouse cooper fucking holding you know that you can really trust to to hold this accountable and then you have to have fair media coverage to actually there's a lot of things that you have to hypothesize for that to work but maybe that is maybe that is the way in different educational systems so there's like education around what you're actually voting on rather than just tribal impulses and anger and yeah you know whatever who's who's ever whoever's more effective in their ad hominem character assassinations yeah
1: well, I think that's what you're describing is moving in the direction. If, if let's say, voluntarism is the ideal of government is completely gone. It, let's say involuntary government is completely gone. It's all private property. You consent to everything. How are we going to get there? And there are lots of theories. Some people say it has to happen immediately, and other people say it will be gradual. So I think what you're describing are gradual shifts toward smaller government, more decentralized government, giving people more explicit consent over the issues, which is, we have to move in that direction, it, mm-hmm. it feels to me. Um, But you reminded me of two points that I want to mention here because this really shifted my view of government when I learned these things. Um, One is if you think about the way we do government in the world, we say like we need to have the structure in place because human beings are too irresponsible and untrustworthy and warlike. And if you let the people go by themselves, you'd have complete chaos. So we're going to put the structure in place and we're going to have a social contract that's implicit and let these people rule. The Problem with that is who are the people that you're putting in power? It's a subset of the people that you just said were untrustworthy, irresponsible, and warlike. And not only are you putting, you're putting them in its position of power, they have unilateral decision-making authority over you. So it's like, logically, we got a problem here because you've defined humans a certain way and you're taking some of those humans and giving them power. And not only that, but positions of power naturally um, attract certain types of people. Not every politician's bad, but you can attract even psychopathic personalities who just crave power. They have no empathy. That's a, a psychological phenomenon that's acknowledged. So that's really problematic um, on its face. But also the way we do taxation, um, getting to the point that you mentioned of like trying to vote on each issue, we can be forced to fund things that we find to be immoral. and just have to pay for it. I think we're, I
0: mean, what are we, we, we've given 68 billion to Ukraine. I mean, uh, I don't like the fact that they're being invaded, but I don't know what the fuck's going on out there. I didn't like... I don't know. Maybe, maybe, but like where was my consent? Exactly. In that, you know, that's a big it's a big whack of cash. It's a lot of people we could help and a lot of things. Maybe that's the right move. I uh, but who knows? There's no accounting for it. Like who knows where it is and all the there's like a trillion that'll disappear off the you know, off the like accounting right at the like,
1: oh, I don't know where it goes. What do you mean you don't know where it went?
0: Yeah.
1: It's like it's crazy. If it were you, just you putting your money where you want it to go and the char- pick the charities yourself, you had causes that you really like. Right, it would be much more efficient in theory.
0: Yeah, and then you could, if you if you wanted to support the Ukrainian cause, you could donate to that. You could do and it. And I'm not, and again, I'm not saying that that's a bad allocation of money, but there it, it is there. There was absolute non-consent for me. I haven't, I haven't thought of. I have, I don't know enough. Really, right. I don't know what the, I don't know what the deal is going on there. Seems like Russia's, you know, being a dick. Right. Most likely, but like, I don't, I don't know.
1: Yeah. And, but in what other area of society are you forced to put money towards something that you don't necessarily know about or that you might even find outright immoral? Right. So that's a real problem. And then going back to the spiritual aspect of it, that's, you're going to force someone to support an, a cause that he or she finds immoral. Wow. That's mm-hmm. like, um, so you could look at taxation that way. I know this is very, yeah, I'm, I'm flipping it on its head. Um, th- because we're not trained to look at government this way, we're lo- we're trained to look at it as this benevolent force that's going to help. And, and I mean, there are positive aspects to governments, and there have been good sure. politicians throughout history. There's that aspect too. It's the both and. But it's like we've got to look at what this is objectively. Take away all of our biases. Do you you think, fund things. Do you think yeah. the last
0: good politician was murdered? Do you think, J- do you think uh, JFK might have been might have been actually like the outlier, and he might have been like dope as fuck?
1: I've seen so many theories on this. Um I think the official word from the national archives is that there was a conspiracy involved. They think there was a conspiracy involved. Now why? I don't know. I don't know. I mean it it, it seemed
0: like it seemed like when I look out look at everybody it seemed like oh that dude might have been he might have been the he might have been the the fucking dope one that we needed that, that actually like s- split like his survival would have split the future. You know, like we would be on a different timeline. Like we're in we're in hmm. the parallel universe of the of JFK getting getting killed, and there was an, in in another universe where he's alive. We're in a whole different universe. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you can never who who knows. But when I really look at like politicians, I actually thought Obama was going to be that dude personally. Like when he first ran, I was like, "We're back, baby." <laughs> you know, we got this. And you know, I don't think he was horrible, but he certainly didn't live up to what my hopes and dreams were for like the the excellence that we needed. He had amazing dignity. He was like super like incredibly dignified person who presented. And like there's some cool stories. Like my boy Ben Nempton got to like shoot hoops with him in the White House. And like <laughs> he was a dude. And you know, there's lots of good things about him, but he wasn't he wasn't the guy that I that I hoped he would be. Yeah. You know, from a leader standpoint. Uh, but it seems like JFK might have been that dude. I mean, obviously he probably was having sex with Marilyn Monroe and there's probably some other weird <laughs> shit that was going on. Like all that aside, um, I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, who, whoever it is, the things that I would look for in that person would be someone that is trying to shrink government, trying to make government less active in our lives and wanting to decentralize power. I would look at that probably before anything else because that's someone who wants to reduce the violations of the non-aggression principle.
0: mm mm-hmm. Would you who would you if you could have anybody be president right now, who would it be Ooh,
1: that's a tough one, man. <sighs> you need someone with real integrity that yeah. wouldn't be warped by the the power that can overtake people. Yeah. Um I'll talk about some people just generally, not as like real candidates, but someone in the school of thought of these libertarians that I really respect in the Austrian school, like Ron Paul, mm-hmm. who's not running anymore, but he talks about a lot of these sure. principles. I've
0: always, I've always appreciated what he's had to share.
1: Yeah, um, where he, he talks about non-aggression principle. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, to me, aligns with my values. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, that's a, that's a powerful thing. And there's some other people that talk similarly, like Thomas Massey, mm-hmm. um, congressman. So I would say anyone who, who's talking about non-aggression principle.
0: Yeah, that's I'll be, a big, I'll be that's cool a big one. That's a big one for you. And I think it's a big one for me too.
1: Because it encompasses, it encompasses so many so things. It's yeah. like a
0: guiding, it's a guiding principle. It's a guiding principle. And then It's it like ripples. the foundation of the platform, I think. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Politics.
1: Complicated. Complicated. But for me, to simplify it, smaller and less centralized. Yeah. And, and more localized. And more localized. And what is a great reset one? They want the global, centralized, bigger government
0: well we got a we got a case study going on in china you know so let's just let's just look what's going on there and another one going on in north korea yeah and uh and what's the what's the um she's kind of like the political refugee that's been on jordan peterson's podcast and uh, i forget her name but what Uh, yaomi park Park.
1: from north korea yeah yeah
0: she tells she like gives like the inside scoop of what's what's actually been going on and it's fucking terrifying
1: Right, that's the extreme of where it can go. But I mean, we're on that road. People are pointing to Canada a lot with the truckers. Yeah, their bank accounts were frozen. I mean, that's a scary thing. Where, sure.
0: And if we have CBDCs, you know, then everything can be frozen. Yes. Not just your bank accounts, like your whole money supply. Yes. Exactly. And, and this that's is, fucking scary
1: to me. This is the technology part of the Great Reset. You know, is the the pros of technology are, are there? But how can it be used to control people? Right. And it's tied into the politics. So they're all interrelated. Um so economics next? Sure. It's related to politics, of course. But they want to re- probably more than we think. More than we think. And this again, this is one of the key principles. It might
0: entirely be politics, actually. It so, might be it might be a money-driven corporatocracy that's actually running the show universally and actually the World Economic Forum as the ambassadors of the true power of, you know, of the world, which is money. Like that is actually the power force. Like money itself is actually running everything. And, and when I asked Brett Weinstein what he thought like the meta problem with our world is, he said it's the problem of capture. It's a problem of money corrupting and capturing politicians, capturing, you know, controlling interests yeah. in this kind of nefarious way.
1: Yeah, cronyism. Yeah. And that's one of the other problems of having this government structure is that the government has control over the citizens. It can impose things against their will. And it can be influenced by other people who have the funding to tell, to say, just do this. It can not only can be, it is. It is. Right. It, it, that In practice, it is. And media is influenced by the advertising
0: dollars, you know, so, and and which, and influenced by the government, which is influenced by campaign contributions. <laughs> and so the
1: whole, it's this whole circle right. of being captured. Which then mind controls the public because they're only exposed to certain things and they get right. the repetition. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from PJ O'Rourke, who said, when buying and selling are controlled by legislation... The first things to be bought and sold are legislators. Right? Yeah. So that's the problem with with government intervention in the economy um, also, is that it can be influenced by the special interests who are funding the politicians to alter capitalism in whatever way that those other people want, who aren't even in the government. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Great Reset seems to be moving toward. Um, And there's a phenomenon known as ESG, environmental, social, and governance, which is a really big buzzword these days that com- companies are abiding by ESG. And in some ways, that's a really good thing because if we want to protect the environment. We want good social outcomes. We want good governance. But what is the version of that that's going to be imposed? That's the big question. And if people at the World Economic Forum or other influencers like them get to set the rules and get to say, this is our version of environment. This is our version of social. This is our version of governance. And if you don't do it, then you're going to have problems with the law or who knows what the problem is going to be. They get to then steer the whole economy and get to shape how businesses are run. And uh, they can implement an ideology through that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: that's, that's, <laughs> that's what's happening. That's what's happening. And uh, there's a book called Woke Inc. by Vivek Ramaswamy, which has been very popular. He goes through this. He's a finance guy himself, Harvard grad, and talks about how uh, it's essentially the marriage of a woke ideology with capitalism to make a worse version of capitalism mm-hmm. where the the winners of capitalism get to control the system mm-hmm. effectively by influencing how capitalism is run. And it allows big companies to have this facade of benevolence. And maybe some of them are, but maybe some of them aren't. Right. And they get to say, well, look, we care about justice and we're following these ESG regulations. So my point with all this is we have to just be discerning again. There's a lot of compassion that can come with this. But we have to be discerning. And also, it's not a voluntary uh, version of ESG, typically. Mm -hmm. Um, And what what Klaus Schwab calls it is stakeholder capitalism, which is in opposition to shareholder capitalism, which is typical capitalism. So a few definitions here. Capitalism is just people making exchanges voluntarily. Mm -hmm. So you buy a bottle of water for me. That's capitalism. There's no intervention. There's no government saying it's evil. You got, you guys can't exchange. Right. So, I mean, capitalism is often demonized and I think unfairly. It's allowing people to engage in consensual exchanges. Yeah. And Murray Rothbard, who's one of my favorite economists in this area, he's an Austrian economist. He makes this point, um, which is that um, some people in society will allow consenting adults to do things in the sexual domain and say, you've got to be free to do that. But when it comes to consensual trade, that becomes a problem. So it's sort of like this... Uh, selective application of consensual relationships mm-hmm. and that's what capitalism really is so and and i think yeah. one of the one
0: of the areas where you can apply the principle of non-aggression is non-aggression toward the environment actually which is which is i think there is there is some value to this but you have to apply it first from the principle of non-aggression yeah. first from like the protection of the collective comments and you have to have some genuine integrity about this yes. you know my 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 father politically was a libertarian. And so I was exposed to libertarian philosophy, you know, a lot growing up. But he was always like, I'm a more environmentally leaning libertarian where I'm considering the sovereignty of the environment as something that we should treat the same way we treat the non-aggression principle towards people, Mm -hmm. that we can't unnecessarily violate the environment. And that actually this is the place for government to create regulation in some ways because obviously we can see how this can go awry where there's just you know strip mining where there's just pools of pools of toxic waste that's leaking into rivers and streams and then getting into our crops and animals and and also the way that you know different uh, glyphosate is mm-hmm. used and what that you know the deleterious effects of that so you can't let capitalism just do whatever the fuck it wants and at the cost of the environment the environment has to have a voice you know, and like so, there's some, there's some legal kind of uh, activist groups like Earth Justice, and I don't know how good they're doing at it, but they're trying to like give people a voice. Like, I'm I'm here representing the dolphins against these plastic companies. Or I'm yeah. here representing the, I'm here representing the Everglades against this. I'm here representing the, the the water supply of this you know northeast region or whatever. And and I think there is a place for protecting in in and upholding the non-aggression principle to the environment, but it can very easily get twisted with idealism.
1: Right. And so the way the Austrians handle this question of environmentalism is they say it comes down to private property again, where if there is a polluting entity that disrupts or harms your property or even the air over your property, then you have a legal right to go after them. They're initiating aggression against your property Uh through their pollution. Uh So what what Rothbard says is the, the problem with environmental the environmental stuff is the inability of government to protect people's property. And if they did that properly, then they would hold the right people accountable. So that's how they correct it. And there are also some examples that the Austrian economists give of uh, highly centralized governments where they controlled the economy, where they destroyed the environment. So the USSR is an example. There's a book called eco in the USSR that they like did the most damage that you can imagine to their country. And they were a socialistic, communistic, mm-hmm. you know, controlled country. So it comes down to who's the controller and are they going to be competent to actually take care of the environment and protect the property. So the Austrians would say the private property owner has to be the responsible one. And the argument I actually make in my Liberty book is that it's not just voluntarism that we should be moving toward. And this applies to the Great Reset too. I call it non-dual voluntarism. So I look at politics from basically two dimensions. One is the metaphysical dimension and the other is the political dimension. The political dimension is either you're on one end of the spectrum of voluntarists, where you just want it all to be consensual. And the other end of it is statism, where you believe in this state to rule. So I think we need to be moving toward voluntarism. That's my argument. But then there's another axis of what I call non-duality, highly spiritual, the acknowledgement that we're all interconnected versus scientific materialism or physicalism. The idea that we are just biological robots in a meaningless universe, to quote Alex Zakiris. Right which is my, that, that's how I used to think. So it, it creates a two by two matrix. You have the, um, the political axis and the metaphysical axis. And what I'm arguing is we need to be moving toward the non-dual and the voluntarist society together. Why is that important? Because in a voluntarist society, people have lots of liberty to do what they want as long as they're not initiating aggression. But how are those individual decisions going to be made if they have a spiritual compass? They'll want to make better decisions for themselves and for the environment. That's yeah. the argument I make. Yeah. So it's both the metaphysical and the political together.
0: What do you how do you handle the situation where, all right, let's say my wife's grandfather, she he lives in Hawaii still. And let's say hypothetically that pollution from China is impacting his private property in Hawaii. Right. Yeah. And actually, so what is he going to do? Like, like, you know is he going to file a lawsuit against China or some factory in Guangzhou and whatever responsibility that that fact, like it becomes difficult with the nation states, you know, and how interconnected the whole world is. Right. Like that becomes also a challenge. And, and in some ways, again, and I don't believe, I am not for this one world government idea, but you start to actually understand that well fuck there does need to be some kind of cross border cross border kind of l- at least legal accountability yeah. because you can you can pull it like if I, if I do a bunch of pollution on this side of the line and it's coming over to this side of the line because pollution doesn't doesn't actually recognize borders it doesn't give a shit you know you, or if you do something upstream and then the stream goes across over another country but you can't do anything about something in that mm-hmm. you know where it is upstream, that's a that's a problem. So in some ways that would be an argument for at least some form of global, global court system, at the very least, or some way in which, but the problem with setting that up is you're also then backdooring right. in all of the totalitarian bullshit as well. So
1: it, it's that's also complicated. Complicated. And it would take time to work itself out because you might need Violence in self-defense. I mean, sometimes that's warranted. If someone is initiating aggression against you, you might just have to be. So eventually that you might have private property owners that effectively become very similar to what a country looks like right now. But the people who are members of that country, quote unquote, are voluntary subscribers. So it's like, you know, and then you could have a, a private military, private defense, private police, all those things. And let's say, I don't know, some entity messes with that private country. Then there's a mini war, or some kind of conflict.
0: Yeah. Which is which is also scary because then you get this oligarchic, oligarchic right. and like kind of warlord mentality where you're getting this like tribal infighting over, you know, perceived perceived uh violations. And uh <laughs> it's a sticky wicket, as they, as they say for sure. But I, I think I think, I think fundamentally the principles, I think first of all, we got to agree on the principles yeah, and then we got to collectively come together and figure out the solutions. But the problem is, is that we're not really agreeing on, on first principles like non-aggression.
1: And also looking at the alternative, like you, you just mentioned a lot of good points about how this could go wrong. And the alternative is we've got governments and they're doing the same thing. They've got wars going on and killing people. So it's like the alternative is not so good. So what I'm referring to is I call it a less, a less imperfect solution
0: yeah 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 i'm 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 with you man i'm with you but and, and really i think from a meta perspective what we're talking about is is getting to what i'm getting from this is like the necessity for shared values right shared first principles it's something that i talked to you know rabbi dr mark gaffney a lot about is like the necessity to establish common first principles and first values of the cosmos evolution non-aggression you know these certain you know personal sovereignty you know like certain things that are like really actually universally agreed upon and then how the logistics play out well we do our best but we have to agree on the first values and first principles yeah
1: that's how i look at it too and to me the first principles are built into the fabric of reality that's what the evidence points toward
0: it's not a first principle if it's not right right it has to be it has to be true all the way up and all the way down
1: and yet what is the great reset talking about in terms of these these are metaphysical principles we're talking about silent. They're not talking about... And that that's what to. you're
0: talking about, what's omitted.
1: It's omitted. It, they're not talking about a spiritual revolution, which I think, and I know you think this is important too, like we, we got to get connected. And that's not what they're talking about. And there are people that are associated with the Great Reset, like Yuval Noah Harari, and they take on a very materialistic worldview, which is um, the idea that life is random and meaningless, that consciousness, the reason that we are aware is solely because of our brain. And when the brain shuts off, that's the end of your consciousness. Yep. That's it. And if you believe that sort of thing, life doesn't have fundamental meaning. You can do things without metaphysical consequences. There's no life review, right? right? Like that's, right. that's BS. That's superstition under this materialistic perspective. So then life review
0: and, and, the, and the eternity of our existence beyond the physical dimensions is also a first, first principle and first value that we have to kind of agree on to actually understand justice. I'm with you. So that becomes another one. So we're starting to propose like what these first principles and first values actually start to look like right. that can then shape everything everything underneath it and how that happens, because we have to get from here to there. You know, it'd be one thing if we were riding that train all the way through and we had years to evolve the complexities of how that works out. And we were creating our own, you know, in the, in the Hebraic lineage, there's the Torah, which mm-hmm. is like the kind of the the guiding principles and stories and there's a bible and there's these guiding principles and stories of the divine which are also wildly misinterpreted but then there's the talmud which is exploring like you know what what ask what like all right well in these like 50 50 balls like what do you do in this situation Mm -hmm. you know and ari shafir does a great job i mentioned this on another (laughs) podcast like talking about some of these somewhat ridiculous cases that they came up with, like they have a mandate against not eating pork products. And they actually talk about in the Talmud, what happens at what portion of ham that gets put in a soup, are you not allowed to eat the soup? And they draw a line at 160th ham. If it's less than 160th ham, go ahead, eat the soup. No big deal. More than 160th, you got to throw the soup out. You know, and so like, you have to start to figure shit out. You have to start to draw little borders here which is also ridiculous, but, but, but that, would be, that would take time to evolve. But fundamentally, the first principle, and not that I agree with this, even though I'm, that's my lineage, I don't have an issue particularly with pork versus other things. I think the ethical treatment of animals is important, but they're trying to like sort out like, all right, where do we draw the line? And it's going to be imperfect because that's the existence that we have, but we at least would have time to start figuring
1: out all the little rules that we agreed upon and made sense. Yeah but it starts with that acknowledgement of a spiritual dimension to our existence. That's fundamental. And this started my personal journey in 2016. I was a hardcore materialist working in finance in Silicon Valley, thought life was meaningless I mean, hit a wall in a lot of ways um, because it's hard to live that way and deal with the ups and downs if you think there's no meaning behind it. But then I came across the science of consciousness and that there were rigorous scientific studies out there that were suggesting that our consciousness is not stuck in our skull that psychic phenomena, which sound like science fiction, they are scientists running those studies. I'm on the board of an organization called the Institute of Noetic Sciences. It was founded by Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, who wanted to be able to study these things at an independent organization because at mainstream academic institutions, you're typically shunned for this sure. sort of thing. can't sure. get tenure if you want to study psychic phenomena. So that's part of this building the first principles, I think, is building scientific open-mindedness, whether it's consciousness studies or around the pandemic, you know, there's been a lot of suppression and censorship. And um, Dr. Mario Beauregard, who's a neuroscientist in this area who studies spiritual phenomena from a scientific perspective, he said in an interview last year that at a major a neuroscientific institute in Canada where he does stuff, he had funding to, to look at scientific stuff from the spiritual uh, realm. And he was told that as long as I'm here, this person who was the head of the organization, as long as I'm running this place, you will never run these studies here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's something I'm coming across a lot in my research that there's this suppression, and why is this so important? Because of exactly what you said, we need to get to some first principles, and some people like me, I needed the science to get me over that hump to be open to these yeah. phenomena, and if you're going to suppress the science, that that could help suppress our our collective movement toward these first principles.
0: Yeah, fundamentally, suppression is anti-scientific entirely. Yeah you know like actually undermines the entirety of science itself which is the process of asking questions and testing your hypothesis yeah uh, like how do you how do you actually say that you're pro-science if you're suppressing information and in, in the review and analysis of alternate hypotheses you're not you're in a dogma you're in a religion you're a fundamentalist at that point not a scientist yeah
1: yep and that's the irony and the hypocrisy of all this it's yeah. anti-scientific somehow. So part of the, let's say, positive great reset is a, I I think, open-mindedness and openness of ideas. Like this notion that certain ideas are dangerous, that is a slippery slope to me. Where like you can't express an opinion because that opinion, I talk about this in my culture chapter, that, that like words are violence, that they're synonymous. Um, the economist uh, Th- Thomas Sowell says it's almost like people are saying that a match is a forest fire.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You need someone to light the match yeah. and, and put it, needs, it in the forest. And it needs to catch. And it needs to catch. There's steps in the middle. And this idea of trying to suppress words, I get very concerned about. And the World Economic Forum, among other bodies like it, they talk about the dangers of quote-unquote disinformation and misinformation. And Who determines what those words mean? Yeah. There's
0: this strange tangential thing that's happening with the World Economic Forum. Because obviously my path wasn't through the gates of science, my Mm -hmm. path was through direct experience, through my work with psychedelic medicines and the great traditions around the world. There is a variety of different psychedelic medicine practitioners and shamans that were invited to this World Economic Forum Summit to offer their medicine. And I'm looking like, what? Hmm. Like, what? Like, what is this about? Now, of course, there's like the nefarious application because as we know, Moctezuma was serving his priests, Noctil, the flesh of the gods, psilocybin mushrooms, as they were ripping the hearts out of thousands of people they were sacrificing and then feeding the guards through Hitzlipochtli, the hummingbird god, the war god's mouth. And, and they were using psychedelics for that. So it's not like psychedelics are all good. Mm-hmm. You know, It's they're, they have, they're a tool that can expand your consciousness. But I think when you look at consciousness, you have to look at consciousness as both, all the dark and all the light you know there's there's polarity in at least most of the strata of consciousness and so psychedelics will open the gates but depending on where you're looking and what energy you're you're finding, you're going to find greater access Mm -hmm. to the to those entities and those energies so i wonder is it like is this some like even deeper nefarious plan or is this actually they're trying to figure it out the best they can. And they're using the tools that they think might work. And maybe it will work. Maybe yeah. they'll like, maybe, you know, maybe Klaus will be like, man, y'all, I had this fucking ayahuasca <laughs> journey. You won't believe it. I've been totally fucked up. I'm so sorry, y'all. Like, I got a new plan. <laughs> yeah. you know? And I was like, whoa, wouldn't that be a curveball? That'd yeah. be like surprise of the, the surprise of the century. But I don't know. I suppose it's possible.
1: Yeah. I'll come out with the new reset. I <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Yeah. The great awakening, which is, which is, you know, nomenclature that, uh, that we just found out both of us yeah. is like kind of going around as the antithesis of the great reset and maybe they merge.
1: Yeah. It's hard to say. It's hard, hard to say. know. And I say it's unlikely, but you know, it's hard to know the intent of any individual and that's yep. another reason I try not to point fingers at people. Agreed. Because you just don't know. They might actually think they're doing a good, a good thing. But there are also psychopathic people that want to control the world. And that's happened throughout history. They've gotten in positions of power. Well, oh, all right. And here's
0: another thing to look at. Psychopathic people, yes. For sure. Um, there's also, I've encountered dark energies. Yeah. And dark entities that exist in the psychic slash astral realms, right? I've encountered them and we know this they're in all of our stories they're in you know whether it's the gnostics talking about the archons or whether it's the the ideas the demiurge or whether it's you know the enemy the the devil the whatever zoroastrianism divides pretty much splits consciousness in two and talks about the dark side and the light side and then there's a there's a unicity there's a union of the dualism that ultimately you can get to as well but nonetheless like all of these things are available. But basically, the idea could be that they're not psychopathic; they're just serving a different energy. They're yeah. serving a different god, you know, and they're actually loyally and devotedly serving a different god and getting access and power from that. And I think you have to suppose that that's possible as well. That this is not actually a psych, you know, a psychopathology. This is actually just devotees of a different energetic signature that is more
1: anti-life mm-hmm. than life. Yeah. That's possible too. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that, the way you're describing it is how I'm starting to see the world myself. And I talk about this in my book and into Upside Down Contact. I talk about contact with non-human entities, both the dark and the light. And the theme that emerges is that there are these dark entities out there and some people worship them and they will do horrific rituals to invoke the beings who seem to feed off of fear and terror and the destruction of innocence. So people can be influenced by those energies. Sometimes subtly, but other times, like you say, explicitly, where they're serving, yeah. they're serving a master. And there's also maybe more subtle manipulations like blackmail and bribery and threats that can control people's behavior where they just they go along with certain things. So I just mentioned this because I I see a lot of finger pointing out there and as if people know for sure what a person's intention is and why they do things. And we just don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's I think it's a lot, it's a lot safer to point at anti-life energy or like life energy and and just as as a loose as like a loose a loose you know idea and then people are both typically participating in some combination of both like it's i think it would be very rare to find someone who's pure good and pure evil i don't think that's the way our system is built up we're a mix of all of the others and we choose our course and Mm -hmm. we lined up we line up somewhere on the spectrum but we can we contain the entirety of the polarity And I think part of actually being good is to recognize your badness, Mm. to recognize that there's pleasure available in these darker impulses. You know, and and I think we get this. And like for a pointing out instruction, a thought experiment, imagine you watched a movie with a horrible villain. Villain is doing fucking horrible shit. They've fucked, you know, they've killed the hero's family. They've tortured people. They've, you know, just done monstrous things. The hero gets the upper hand hero gets the upper hand and the hero looks him in the eye and they as he capture him and they go and your death will not be quick and the, and everybody in the audience is like yeah well what is everybody cheering for torture mm-hmm. is you know infliction of suffering but they we just have a justification that allows us to enter into the ecstasy of torturing somebody yeah and so like we all, and we are, we're all there. We've all been in a movie. You know, like even when in, uh, in 300, you know, where the queen, Gorgo, she stabs that the traitorous cunt. Uh, I don't know who his character was, but the guy who was like undermining Leonidas in the thing after he like basically forces her to have sex with him to try and save her husband and you know he goes this will not be this will not be over quickly and you will not enjoy it and you're like motherfucker. and then she like she grabs and grabs his knife and then stabs him and whispers in his ear this will not be quick and you won't enjoy it and you're like fuck yeah, yeah. you know what i mean and so it's like we're participating in the joy of righteous in our mind righteous murder suffering death but but there's joy in it yeah and like, that's recognizing that all of these, all of these feelings are available to us. And it's our choice as to like where we line up on the spectrum. And, and I think an acknowledgement of our badness and our capacity to receive pleasure from our badness is necessary to say like, yeah, I get it. I, I have the badness within me and I could enjoy it, but I won't because of things like life review and because of things about the choice about who we are as a person
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i think that's like that's also necessary to navigate
1: yeah david hawkins the spiritual teacher he called it the juice that we extract psychologically from you know watching certain like uh, what we consider to be justice or something or revenge mm. and we get a, a pleasure from it there's a psychological incentive to go after that and i think you're you're right to point out that part of this evolutionary journey is to acknowledge that that aspect is within all of us. And it's the choice of what what we're going to go toward. The way that I frame it in my book and end upside down contact, because I looked at all these energies out there that people are reporting throughout history, throughout different cultures all over the world, um, that our brain is effectively tapping into stuff all the time. And there's Mm -hmm. a book called The Science of Channeling by Helene Wabe. She's the director of research at Institute of Noetic Sciences. And she says basically like, we might be channeling stuff without our explicit knowledge of it. Like, where do our thoughts and creative ideas come from? Who knows? Maybe they're being influenced by things we don't see with our eyes. And we also have this ability to control our mind, to try to steer it in a certain direction, Mm -hmm. to try to choose what we call quote-unquote good over quote-unquote evil. And I think that's essential in this positive reset too, is acknowledging that these things exist within all of us. And to go back to Ken Wilber, he talks about... Waking up, cleaning up and growing up as Mm -hmm. different aspects of our evolution. That's really stuck with me because waking up is, I mean, that's really important too. acknowledging our spiritual uh, dimension and living a life that way. But cleaning up is really important. That's looking at the darkness within us individually and societally. And I know psychedelic work goes into this, but there's a lot of other shadow work that people can do to look at that darkness. But the key is to acknowledge that it's there and not to do a spiritual bypass and say well I don't want to look at that that's right too it's, uncomfortable. All ra- it's
0: all rainbows and butterflies over here yeah. yeah and then you become then actually your darker actions are in the shadow your own your own viciousness and aggression you know goes you know goes kind of underground and you don't actually see where you're being vicious you know like you could be pretending like I'm just sending this person love. But meanwhile, you're just gossiping amongst your friends and Mm -hmm. actually spreading poison in your own vicious way, but you're unaware of it. Because ostensibly, instead of being like, hey, fuck you, you know, which is the authentic response that you would feel, you're saying that's all love. You know, I got a place for you on my altar. And then meanwhile, you're being vicious. Yeah. And and you're not even aware that you're being vicious, but that anger has to go somewhere instead of outwardly expressing it and allowing it to like, move through you, you like hide from it. And I think this is the, this is the problem of shadow. Yeah. Fundamentally.
1: Yeah. And and this happens with spiritual teachers too. Like the fallen gurus, they haven't addressed certain shadow. And then, you know, Mariana Kaplan, who's examined lots of enlightenment experiences and teachers, she says it's money, sex, and power. Those are the three things that will corrupt someone who might even be quote unquote enlightened in certain ways. But I think it's also important as our society evolves forward is to, to acknowledge the dark side of all that. And um, I'm reminded now of this story that's really stuck with me from David Hawkins, a spiritual teacher. He wrote Power Versus Force, but a lot of other books too that have had a big impact on me. And he claims that as he was going through his enlightenment process and surrendering all of his attachments and, you know, reaching states of bliss that people have described all over the place, he said he was in this place where it was like just him. So he was, you know, beyond his body. And then he said a knowingness came. Presumably an entity. That's what he was describing. That said, look, you've transcended all of your personal karma. All power is yours. Take it. And he thought for a minute, he said it happened in an instant, but he was like, wait a second. If I am everything, why do I need power over others? I reject Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. He calls it the Luciferic temptation. And -hmm. he said in his teachings, he wanted to tell that as much as he could because he felt like there was a responsibility to teach people that story because everyone will encounter it at some point on their path. That you'll be tempted by something. And but that's acknowledging that there is deception and there is temptation. Uh, some people don't want to acknowledge that. That's you know some spiritual teachings say, well, we shouldn't even look at those things because it's too much negative energy.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I th- the Luc- like Luciferian kind of concepts are interesting. It's something that's evolved for me over time. But I I like the way that uh, that Dr. John Churchill, the Mahayana Buddhist, described it as luciferian you know translated as the light bringer but what it is 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 the false light Mm. it gives you actually it's it feels like light it feels like life force and it feels like the fuck of the constant fuck of the cosmos that you're getting it feels like but it's not actually it's like it's what mark gaffney would call pseudo eros it's like it's has similar qualities to what authentic power and authentic authentic love and authentic you know, expression of your sexuality looks like, but it's just twisted slightly. Mm. And like, that's where it throws you off course is it's the false light. It's, yeah. bringing, it's bringing the light and saying, here's, here's your special little light rather than being like, light is everywhere. And it's yours and not yours always, you know? And Luciferian tries to say, no, it's yours. Mm. It's your light. <laughs> you know, you get this, you get to wield it. And that makes it, that makes it the false light. And I was like, that's a pretty interesting way to look at it.
1: Yeah. It's discernment again. Yeah. It's the same theme to acknowledge that there can be a trick to not just follow. David Hawkins used to talk about the distinction between perception and essence. Perception is what something appears to be on the surface, like judging a book by its cover. Mm -hmm. The essence is what something actually is. So is it the false light that what we just perceive as something benevolent or is it, you know, what's underneath it?
0: Yeah. And I think a disambiguating this, if you, if you want to ascribe to this pantheon of dark entities, then disambiguating Lucifer from satanic energy,
1: mm, yeah. which
0: I think is the acknowledgement that this is not light, this is darkness. And it's in full awareness that, you know, it's not trying to, it's not trying to candy coat it. Like the satanic energy is like, no, this is darkness. Right. You're actually taking something innocent, beautiful, full of life, and you're destroying it and violating it and there's going to be a pleasure response or some kind of devotional action that you get or some kind of reward of some sort from this but there's no there's no trickery right it's explicit it's explicit yeah. right yeah. and and i think this is a that's a kind of reasonable disambiguation you know i don't i've encountered dark entities i don't <laughs> I don't steer my ship there in the psychedelic journey so i don't know enough about it to kind of like comment from a place of like gnosis like but it seems to make sense if you start to like, start to look at you know look at the the way that these different energies can appear, and then I think there is a, there is a value to deifying these because these energies exist and where they aggregate, where they clump, where they find commonality. Well, you can deify that, mm-hmm. and then actually understand that even if that deity, you can say it's real or not real, but whatever, it's still an aggregation of energy, and that aggregation of energy that has certain qualities. So go ahead and make a uh, make a symbol for it just like we use words so that you can actually understand it and call it what it is and and then be aware of what it is it's just our way to actually organize our consciousness and i think that's actually helpful and that's why i think actually the you know the polytheism and the animism is actually oftentimes more helpful than the monotheism because when you get to the God is everything and everywhere, and that's all there is, and there's no other deities. Well, yeah, it's true. I think all the deities participate in the one God. Right. But how does that help you to make decisions? And how does that help you figure out what to do? It's very hard. As if all is everything all the time, then all is God. Then what's good and what's bad? And certainly some things feel good. You know, a hug is different than a punch in the gut. It's just different. You know, but is that God's work? Well, if God is everything all the time, all at once, then of course it is. But that doesn't help. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. it's, so it's, it's important to, to ha- both... I think we're just missing sometimes an intermediate step of the polytheism and the animism, which is just the breaking down of reality in these different forces, which then includes that and then transcends it to the recognition of the all is God principle. Yeah.
1: There's an acknowledgement that these things exist. Right. That's, that's needed. To deny that is denying part of reality. Mm-hmm. And also it's to it can make one susceptible to some of these deceptions. And, and also, some might even say that psychopathic energies, what we call psychopathic, like you say, is just tapping into the dark force. Like the psycho- psychopathy is a reflection of dark energy. Yeah. In a sense. And without understanding that that dark energy exists and wants to take away innocence and wants to torture and bring about fear, it's difficult to even relate and to acknowledge that that's possible. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important when evaluating things happening in the world that there can be dark energies influencing stuff that want us to be more in fear. Because if you ignore it and say, no, it's just all in love and light and it's just unity— then you won't think about the the downsides. And this right. is, again, back to the beginning, compassion with discernment.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think what we're really covering here is we're covering this, the differences between the spiritual dimension of like great reset ideology, yeah. which is there's no higher power. There's no, you know, no fundamental meaning. None of these deities or energies actually exist. It's, and this is kind of this postmodern postmodern harari everything is just a story and no story is fundamentally different or better than another story yeah you know that's that's loosely if i'm going to paraphrase what he's trying to say and that's why he's you know paraded on stage at all these wwf conferences because that's in their spiritual ideology which is an inherent justification for basically doing anything because it's there's no first principles and no first values there's no life review there's no existence of anything else so your story is as good as anybody else's story and if your story includes infanticide all right it's just your story yeah that's fine it's as good as a story which says you know no don't murder children or molest them or anything that's fundamentally wrong and that's participating in a darker energy and while we acknowledge that energy exists and certainly can acknowledge that potentially it even has a place in the cosmos it doesn't have a place here not here not now not on earth not on our watch.
1: Yeah. And there's a duty, I think, to, to make sure that doesn't happen on our watch. Yeah. Uh, which I see this sometimes in spiritual teachings, a complacency or passivity. And then going back to David Hawkins, he told another story that stuck with me. Um, he referenced Ramana Maharshi, this enlightened sage from India, who said that the world that we see doesn't exist. And at some level, like you're saying, Aubrey, like that's true. Like this yeah. is an illusion. We're all just one. Uh, But what Hawkins said is that most people are not operating at that level. Their reality is not that the world we see doesn't exist. They're operating in a world where there is suffering. And Hawkins said that there is a spiritual duty, therefore, to try to alleviate suffering. Because people are not operating from the reality of unity consciousness. That's not there every day. Mm -hmm. And you can't, it's irresponsible to ignore it.
0: I don't think anybody is, actually. I don't think that's part of the game that we're, it's not part of the game that we're in. You know, like... One of the spiritual teachers that I admire the most is uh, a teacher named Muji, Muji Baba. Mm. And unbelievable, you know, he's, they call him like, uh, I don't know, I think like the laughing, the laughing sage or laugh, because he he finds the laughter, the cosmic giggle in, in all of these aspects. And I've loved watching his content and I listened to some of his meditations. So all praise to Muji. However, when he's going from his ashram to another place, He has his disciples and people who are with him that hold a parasol above his head so that, you know, he doesn't get in the sun. He doesn't like being in the sun. You know, he's a, I think, Jamaican-born, you know, person of Jamaican descent, and he just doesn't, doesn't like the sun, doesn't like being in the sun, doesn't like being hot. Well, okay, so... Even that, like if you said, oh, everything is, everything is all one. The sun is the same as the shade and it doesn't matter. Why would you have a parasol? Like you can't, you can't have both. Yeah. Even at the highest levels of consciousness, there's still preference, which is discrimination, which is saying, I prefer no sun over sun. And so therefore there's going to be a parasol that's going to, you know, that's going to accompany me when I'm walking on a very sunny day. And, and that's like, okay, great. But let's just acknowledge that. Acknowledge there's no escaping. There's no escaping the laws and existence of this reality. Certain things are going to feel good in the body. Certain things are not. Period.
1: Yeah. To do otherwise would be to deny reality. And that does happen sometimes. It's very counterintuitive. Right. But people can justify weird things by saying, well, there is no you. There's only the collective. There is no individual. Things like that. Which is partially true. Right. But not fully. True, but partially. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What uh what of these categories did we miss? I feel like we skipped at least one.
1: Yeah. Um briefly on the economic part, we talked stakeholder Yeah, so cap- let's go. So let's go yeah. into
0: this. All right, the 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 Great Reset came out with this famous line, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Yeah. That is some fucking real dystopian rhetoric there.
1: Yeah. So that's referring to a 2016 article in Forbes and also a video that was on YouTube that has been taken down. That refers to the world in 2030. Um, so some people say, well, they were just, they were just laying out a hypothetical world that it's not their plan. You know, that's the people who defend it will say that, but it is a scary concept. The idea that private property will be limited. I mean, they, they won't frame it as a shared economy. It's just like, you're going to be sharing things. But also in that Forbes article, uh, the, the author writes, well, I'm, I'm going to have no privacy and I'm okay with that, but I just hope they don't use that against me. Mm-hmm. I mean, given what's happening in the world, that's a scary thing, lack sure. of privacy. And then they start talking about things like AI and, and the impact of robots in the world. Very sci-fi, like dystopian kind of future where you don't have sovereignty and there are machines that are doing everything for humans and maybe even merged with humans. This gets into the technology aspect of the Great Reset, like mm-hmm. transhumanism, where a human being becomes merged with technology under the auspices of wanting to enhance the human. And maybe in some cases, technology can. But the danger is, well, what can that do to our spiritual connection? That's what I wonder. Well, before you
0: start trying to tinker with a human, how about you fucking understand it first? (laughs) Like, I would say that's the prerequisite. Mm -hmm. Let's let's maybe hold for a moment, because we have no fucking clue how majestic a human being actually is. Right. Like, truly. So, until we understand that, let's not tinker with it. Like, you wouldn't do that with any... Like, if you were messing with a nuclear reactor, you'd be, you wouldn't be like, i really not really sure how this works, but uh, let's just throw some pieces on here and see what happens. Yeah, You know, like you got to understand understand it. And that means not only understanding the mechanical Newtonian physiology and biology, but it's also understanding the metaphysical, metaphysical reality of a human being. And that's something that I think is so lacking in this narrative yeah. of
1: transhumanism. Yes, and part of it is... The idea that because there is no uh, spiritual dimension, we can play God. You were alluding to this before. People can just become gods and tinker with biology in whatever way they want. Uh, also, right? without consent. W- without consent, right? And I mean, I wonder about DNA. We, there's so much we don't know about DNA, and what happens when we start tinkering with it? What does that mean spiritually? I don't know.
0: Well, we're. I mean, we're running an experiment. <laughs> you know, we have. Uh, we have. Uh, you know, a quote vaccine that's actually in making changes to your RNA DNA you know, landscape, right? Like this is this is fundamentally what we're doing. And we're running the experiment now. You know, and and this is where it was in many cases, the we violated the principle of non-aggression mm-hmm. because this was not consented upon for most people. There was mandates, there was at least strongly app- applied pressure, like if you want to keep your job, which maybe you need to support your family and blah blah blah. Maybe it's not need in the fact that you would die; we wouldn't kill you. However, you couldn't f- you couldn't have a job, you couldn't do this thing. And in, in certain countries, it was much worse than even we had here. At yeah. least there are certain states that were more reasonable. But and also, this is fundamentally permanently altering your DNA and. We haven't really done any longitudinal studies on that, but you don't get a choice anyways. Right. Like
1: that's not that's not right. Right. That's just not right. Well, coercion was used. Yeah. Do this or you're gonna lose your job. And that's a form of aggression. That's a violation of the non aggression principle. It wasn't injecting it in someone's arm, but it was, you know, making it difficult. It wasn't fully voluntary. And like you say, we just don't know the consequences of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to measure, maybe. We, don't, we might not have the tools to be able to measure spiritual connection as it relates to our DNA, for example. Right. I mean, I'm just theorizing here because there's, we don't know a lot about DNA. And it's,
0: yeah, like how much, is, how much is required from the vessel itself? Yes. If, this, if we are radio transmitters to cosmic frequencies, well, certainly, I mean, I've felt that in my own body. It's like far harder to connect like try to meditate when you have like, when you're really sick or like things are really off in your body, you have a bunch of inflammation. It's not not nearly as easy. Mm-hmm. The radio is not tuned in the right way, but when you feel real good, you've been fasted, you're really clean, like the radio's in pristine condition, like you can receive some powerful connections.
1: Right. So we don't know what we're doing. It's like a exactly. science fiction experiment to do this sort of thing. And that's what, The Great Reset literature talks about, and they even acknowledge the potential for dystopia within technology. They don't acknowledge the metaphysical part of it. But, I mean, even the metaverse, what does that mean metaphysically? To put someone's consciousness in a fake world. Could that be used for good? I mean, let's think about psychotherapy. Maybe you could reenact a situation and, and overcome fears or overcome trauma using the metaverse. Mm-hmm. So they're positives to VR, but how could it go wrong if someone's consciousness is trapped in a fake world and they're not interacting in the world? They're not spiritually evolving in their physical vessel in the same way. Mm-hmm. Like that's not being considered.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because some part of me is like, well, if you create a really dope VR game and people want to play it, like that's also like, that's all my libertarian is like, well, go for it. However, the transparency about what is coercive like under the surface i think that's the problem with the social media algorithms because it's a black box and because of what they're actually coercing you to do it's not a neutral tool Mm -hmm. entirely like the system is built to be manipulative and if the manipulation is covert instead of overt well that's a violation yeah and but speaking of which I think, you know, Elon is talking about open sourcing and put publicly putting all of the Twitter algorithms out. I don't know if he's done that already. He's already exposed a bunch of stuff, Yeah, but it's like, I think it's really cool. And I'm a big believer that actually this is going to create another. So, so what, yes, there's all this great, great reset stuff, but there's also some Powerful, badass people who hopefully are on the good side. And I don't know some people will be like, "Elon's just one of them," you know, blah blah blah. Maybe, but I don't think so personally. It's not what I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we don't know. We don't know the intentions or ideas of anybody. But I don't feel that way. And I feel like he's gotten his he's gotten a hold of Twitter right now, and he's exposing all of the disgusting underbelly of everything that was going on under the surface. And then it's going to illuminate everything, and then really put pressure on you know, meta and all of these other networks to say like, whoa, shit, look at what Twitter discovered they were doing. And can we assume that you guys weren't doing something similar or worse? Of course we can't. Mm -hmm. You know, you were all peas in a pod. And so while we can't, you know, necessarily prove it, we can assume that this was what was going on. And then, so he could then genuinely create a new free, actually non-aggressive and non-manipulative platform where people can speak and share ideas and everything is in the public domain and if you get stuck on twitter and all you're doing is looking at twitter for six hours a day and he's like look here's the ways in which twitter is trying to grab your attention Mm -hmm. you know be aware of this we're open sourcing all of this you got to be mindful that's the same argument with drugs right like all right got to be mindful you know if you, do these, if you do these substances, it's going to alter your consciousness in this way. It's going to be highly pleasurable. We're going to let you know what's up with it. Your choice. Yeah. Your life. You know, and I think that's, that's fair play.
1: Right. But the transparency is important. And yes, going back to this, this free market idea is that transparency will be encouraged through the market. Because people are going to want to buy services when there's transparency. Think about any product. You're going to be more likely, if you have two equivalent products and one's more transparent than the other, that's the only difference. Which one might you choose? Probably the one that's more transparent. Right. Like you're serving customers better Mm. and therefore you're probably going to profit more by bringing about transparency. So we'll see what happens with Twitter. It might yeah. attract I mean, more I'm people.
0: Sh- I'm sure they're I think long term it's going to be that way. I think they're going to get I think they're going to get viciously attacked. And there's going to get a bunch of people where they're, you know, if you're on Twitter, it means X, Y, Z about you and and there's going to be a lot of it's going to be a lot of pushback as there always as there always will be. Yeah. But um yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think we're in a we're in a time where There's certain areas where people don't, they're not comfortable attacking. And I think this is actually the genius of the new psychedelic renaissance Mm. is that particularly with what MAPS has done with the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, they're doing the studies on treatment-resistant PTSD for first responders and military And one thing you can't do, even if you're deep, you know, deep into the woke ideology of the far left, you can't attack first responders and military. They're like a sacred cow. Mm -hmm. You just can't, you know, like it's fundamentally something you can't know. You can attack the policies, you can attack all of that, but you know, you can't do that. Like even, even in the, even in the very highly politicized situation where the police moved into Washington DC and the, and the you know, National Guard moved into Washington, D.C., you know, the left was still championing the the military and championing the, in, in that, because you know you can't attack that. Now, of course, you can attack police, right. obviously, if you have, and then we saw that happen, but but generally this kind of first responders, you know, veterans kind of thing, we we can't do that anymore. And I think that's where, that's where psychedelics have gotten this kind of protective bubble around them and also you can't attack mental health Mm -hmm. you can't attack people trying to treat depression because that's also woven into the pharma which has captured all the media which is promoting different things to you know label things as depression and treat it so it starts to undermine the system in such a fundamental way that you can't yeah and so it's it's this interesting strategic Game board that's happening right now, where I don't think maps necessarily did this on purpose, but maybe a little bit where they're like, all right well if we if we just focus on these people, people won't attack what we're doing because you can't attack these people. They're protected, yeah, in the cultural in the cultural zeitgeist,
1: yeah, and they also tend to focus on the integration aspect of working with a therapist in addition to just taking the substance. So they're focusing on a holistic aspect, which is harder to attack, too.
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. so there's a lot of intelligence behind it. But uh, but yeah, this is, you know, this is 4D chess that is going on right now. And I think we can wish for, we can wish for a time where there is no strategy at play. But this is, this is a debate that I have in my own mind. It's mm. like Where's the place for strategy? And where's the place for just radical, you know, messianic truth of like, I'm just going to speak my piece and whatever arrows come, they come and fuck it. Yeah. You know, and and I think the impulse is to just be like, rah, share everything, hold no opinions back, be slayed if you're slayed, canceled if you're canceled, deplatformed if you're deplanned for, but is that really the best thing for the world?
1: It's a tough tough personal call for all of us. I'm with you. I have the same questions when I write these books and even do interviews. What do I want to cover? Yeah. I have to think about it. Yeah. Um, Because the... I don't know. There's a part of me that just wants to say as much truth as is out there and not worry about it. But then, yeah, what? How much should be strategic? Yeah. Given the world that we live in, it's probably a balance.
0: Yeah, I think it has. This, I think strategy has a seat at the table, you know. And I think it's it's always a measure. I think I think there's a problem when you. And this is something that you know, uh, Mark Gaffney talks about. It, you get a problem when you take one value out of the field of values and i think this is an error that a lot of people make in ethics in general is they'll take one value isolate it from the field of values and say this is the value so if you say truth is the value well you can't yes it is a virtue it is it is a value it is a virtue but it's not the only one you know there's the virtue of do the most good and do no harm Mm. you know like these these principles that are like all right, well, we got to weigh these. We got to weigh these. Like, what's my ability to do the most good? What's, my also, what's also my allegiance to the truth? What's my allegiance to do no harm? You know, in all of these different things. Yeah. So as soon as you raise the whole field of virtue, you build out your field of value and virtue then, and move them all together, then I think you can have a more comprehensive picture. Because otherwise, this kind of, you know, platonic idea of like, this is, this is all the way, all or nothing binary you're either honest fully and transparent fully or you're not it's i i honor that yeah and i think we admire that when we see it when we see a hero in a movie that's like that we're like <laughs> yes you know like i think i think we're drawn to that but uh but it is it is a it is a constant personal decision and i find myself leaning more towards less and less strategy
1: <laughs> you know like
0: that's that tends to be the trend where I'm, where it's going it's like less strategic, more just feel it,
1: listen to the universe and go with it. Yeah. That's been my trend too. Yeah. Because when I wrote my first book, I was still working in Silicon Valley. So I was really like, I'm going to talk about psychic abilities and <laughs> past yeah. lives. Yeah. And I said, I've got to do this and I'm going to just prove it with science. So I'm yeah, covered, yeah. right? And now like I'm writing books about aliens and the great reset, <laughs> like clearly my filter is gone.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also a reflection <laughs> of the way that the, the, you know, collective consciousness is shifting. You know, it's, it's now more, more reasonable to talk about these things. And, um, I think it's also important to, you know, to not get swept away. I think it builds credibility and trust when you actually recognize, like recognize the faults on the, in the areas and the sides that, that are like traditionally in your camp, Mm -hmm. you know? So for me, like I talk about all the time that I think I probably think that most astrology is a bunch of bullshit and like most psychic readings are also a bunch of bullshit and actually oftentimes more harmful than than they are helpful however sometimes it's not and potentially there's some really key guidance that you can get from these fields but like you only have credibility if you if you actually say like all right there's gonna be a lot of people pissed that i don't like astrology or gene keys or you know like all of these different things. I just don't, personally for me, you know, I don't, I'm don't. i not convinced. I think a lot of this is Barnum effect, Forer effect. It's a lot of like, you know, confirmation bias when you hear something and then you attribute it to something. I think a lot of factors are going on where most of this is bullshit. But yet tomorrow, you know, I've got Paul Selig coming on the podcast who channels wisdom from the guides. Yeah. And I fucking believe him. I also have Matias Stefano who's talking to me about past lives from his post-Atlantian life in the city of Chem and he's singing me Atlantean songs and I'm crying because I know they're true. Hmm. And, and like both, but that's credibility is to be like, I don't accept everything. Yeah. But I, this is what I do believe. This is what I don't believe. And same in politics when everybody's like, you know, and that was an issue I had with like Trump supporters, fundamentally. It's like, I understand. And also anti-Trump people. It's like, he's not, he's not all of one thing and all or all of the other thing, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't argue that he's a fucking idiot (laughs) in a lot of categories. And I think there's a very strong case that he did some actually intelligent things as well, you know, and some things were actually productive. And you have to look at, you have to look at both of those or else I don't, I inherently don't trust you. If you're just, if you're just a black and white thinker, that's, that's fundamentalist ideology. That's not rational thought.
1: Yeah. There's nuance in everything. Just like you're saying about the nature of reality. Yeah. There's oneness and there's duality and there's beings Yeah, too. And, and with regard to the psychic stuff, I'm with you that it's not all real, but there are some that are real and there have been studies exactly. done on them and exactly. it's statistically provable. It's not hundred percent accuracy, but that's metaphysically really significant. Wow. Like if you can know things beyond what chance would predict, that means we don't understand science as right. well as we think we do. And to me, that's where, that's the significance more than anything. It's no like doubt. our paradigm has to shift to accommodate some of these quote unquote anomalies. And and
0: I, I firmly believe that my personal theory is that part of what is possible is what is in accord with the collective field of belief. Mm. And this is something I've talked to Charles Eisenstein about, Matthias about like, the things that happened during the time of Matthias's life in the civilization of Chem, because of the field of belief, were fundamentally different than what's possible now, because the field of belief actually informs reality as to what is possible. Mm. And I feel that shifting. And I actually think far more quote magical things are going to become available and start happening than, than we've ever like, than we could ever fathom, because actually they weren't possible for a while except maybe in the rarest, rarest circumstances where there was a microcosm of a field of belief where you had everybody in a room that was abiding by a certain field of belief that created a bubble within the greater collective field of belief. But the moment you insert a scientist who's participating in a different field of belief, it breaks the bubble and you're back into the collective field of belief. So that same phenomenon, some, you know, psychic ability or something is no longer possible when the field of belief is broken. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is just an idea that I have, but I think the collective field of belief is shifting and uh, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm excited. I think, I think we're gonna see some really cool shit happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a shift for sure. I mean, I've had a personal shift, but I've seen other people as well in the last few years. And the way I think about it mes- metaphysically that to me makes it very possible, what you're saying, is if we regard all of reality at the fundamental level to be consciousness that we're all interconnected as a part of. Um, it's like a Bernardo Castro, the philosopher, who says that all reality is one universal consciousness, like an infinite stream of water, where each of us is a whirlpool within that stream.
0: Mm.
1: So we're separate, but interconnected. And if, if that whole stream is just made out of water, um, i.e. consciousness, then the way in which those individual whirlpools are steering their individual consciousness, it should affect the overall state of the stream, right? Yeah. And that's what you're describing. And
0: vice and versa, the stream affects the whirlpool. Yes. As the whirlpool affects the stream.
1: Right. But the critical part of this is where are we directing our consciousness mm-hmm. individually and collectively? And that's why like the work you're doing is so important. And that's why these conversations I think are so important because it can open someone's mind. Yeah. My journey started listening to podcasts and I became exposed to stuff that I was closed off to before. Yeah. It's like you never know what that first domino is going to be for someone and what the ripple effect is going to be. Like the butterfly effect. A butterfly mm-hmm. mathematically flapping its wings in China can cause a hurricane in New York.
0: Yeah. I still don't understand that. It makes no sense to me. But you know, because yeah. I fart all the time and I don't think it's caused <laughs> any disasters. <laughs> uh been such a pleasure, brother. Thanks for coming yeah. on. Um you've listed a bunch of the books that you have. You have a, a new one coming. Um When's that come out and where should people go for just general resources? Where should people follow you?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Aubrey. It's been a pleasure. And it's really fun to be able to have a conversation like this with someone so open-minded. And uh, I really appreciate the work you're doing as well. So thank you for that.
0: Likewise.
1: Um, But to find out more about my work, my website is a good place to start. It's markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. And I have five books. They're on Amazon in Kindle, Audible, or hard copy. And the newest one is called An End to the Upside-Down Reset, which comes out in December uh, 2022 or January
0: 2023. Mm-hmm. Upside-Down is a big theme. It's in uh, in Kabbalist literature. It's called Sitra Akra. It's the Upside-Down and also Stranger Things does a great job, you know, well, fictionalizing, and and but it's cool. It's like the Upside-Down world. And I think this is the split. Like, are we going to find our, are we going to navigate our way to the upside down? Or are we going to turn things right side up? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I believe in us. I think we're going to do it. Yeah. Let's go. Let's, Let's do go. It, we love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Mark Gober, everyone. Make sure you check out his books and speeches and podcasts for more really interesting conversations and thoughts. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.